Are we good to go? We are good to go. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Wednesday, April 13th, 2022, full board of trustees meeting for Alameda Health System. Uh, just as a couple of notes to everybody, this is our first time the board's trying to execute a hybrid meeting. We ask for everyone's indulgence for some obvious tech difficulties we may or may not have during this. So um, if I don't see you, it's probably because I can't see you. So trustees, wave your hand, uh, pull your hair out, do whatever you gotta do to get my attention and we'll make sure that, uh, that you get a place to speak. Uh, this is pursuant to AB 361, allowing teleconferencing. We've had consultation with our uh, Director of Infection Control and uh, we got to go ahead to do this. So with that, let's go to a roll call, please. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Jensen. Here. Trustee Esteem. Here. Uh, Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Blue. Here. Trustee Fox. Here. Trustee Chapman. Here. Trustee Friedman. Here. And Trustee Swindler. Here. We have a quorum. Thank you. We have a full vote and a quorum. So with that, um, Let's go to public comment. As a reminder, this Board of Trustees welcomes public comment. All feedback and commentary is a gift. Notes on public comment for speakers, you need to inform, inform the clerk of the board that you would like to make a public comment. Second, public comment can be made for general items, non-agendized items, that would occur now, or it can occur for agendized items at which your public comment would occur right before that agendized item. Generally speaking, we'll limit the time to three minutes uh, but we may uh, be able, we may need to adjust down depending on the volume of speakers. So with that, those are kind of the rules of the game. Madam Clerk, are there any uh, uh, people who signed up for public comment? Let me just check the one uh, No public comment. Okay, just uh, looking through the screen here because I know this is our first time doing it. I don't see anyone who is waving their hand or who has signed up for public comment. I'll ask for everyone's other indulgence as I'm flipping through this screen and I'm beginning. So with that, we will go beyond public comment and we'll go into the open session. So item one is the executive officer's report. This is a space where we introduce articles and learnings and ask our secretary treasurer or, or our vice president uh, to make commentary. Two articles were submitted for our agenda. Uh, the first one is called Why Healthcare Workers Are Quitting in Droves. Um, Let's talk about that one, trustees uh, and audience, for a little bit. So, wh why did why did I choose this article? So, um, last week I was on spring break with my family, and my world had calmed down a bit from the usual 1,000 miles per hour. So, I was reflecting on some of my own perceptions. I had a perception that the specter of COVID seems to be lifting, and I have a perception on how this organization is now making real and meaningful effort to engage it with its people. And that's sort of when I put myself in check uh, to try not to forget our recent traumas and how that certainly shaped all of us. Uh, as a side note, this article was shared for, with me by uh, my friend and colleague, Dr. Charlotte Wills, a few months ago. She's our emergency department residency program director, and she's uh, been a loyal Highlander for you know a couple of decades. Uh, this article uh, came from the November 2021 Atlantic article. And I wanted to put that in the context we were in a very different place in November and the months leading into it. Uh, we were certainly still in the thick of it at that time. This article, article I find to be a little bit heartbreaking. Uh, its theme revolves around the concept that nearly one in five healthcare workers have left healthcare since the pandemic. 
but it's the stories around those that have left and actually some of those that have stayed that stick with you. Uh, uh, I was communicating with our CMO, Dr. Tornabene, uh, this afternoon, and she gave some a, a nice review, harrowing, vivid, and real, which I, which I sort of agree with. Two points that I took home from this article. Number one, we, we're all kind of familiar with this concept of the great resignation. Reporting in progress. Uh, this, uh, Sorry, my bad. points I took home. One uh, around this concept of the great resignation, which we've talked about in HR committee and people know about this. This is not exclusive to the healthcare industry. But there was a great quote in here, which I want to share with you. Quote, the great resignation is really an expression of optimism that says we can do better. I'd never really thought about it that way. But uh, 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 if we have a positive point of view, I think it, it is an opportunity for us that we can do better. The second a uh, key point I took home were, these are actually real people who have gone through these traumas. They're not characters. And as an interesting side note, uh, one of the, the main uh, people discussed in this article, Dr. Molly Phelps, she was discussed. She's the ED doc in the story who ends up leaving medicine after 18 years. And our tie to Molly Phelps is that she's one of our own. She's a graduate of this Highland ED residency program almost uh, uh, two decades ago, and uh, and she's quit medicine. So so with that, I'll just stop here and ask anyone if they have any comments on this article, why healthcare workers are quitting in droves. Um, I'll, I'll open it up in wherever I can see. I can. Tr Trustee Denson. Um, thank you. Great to be here in person with those of you who are here. I, I found um, one of the things that stuck with me was um, in the article, with, and I do have, uh, it, this may have struck me because I have a, a good friend who's a travel nurse who was, um, who's uh, got a, two advanced degrees in pediatric nursing and she decided to leave um, her hospital in Philadelphia because it was so stressful in 2020. And she, and one of the travel nurses in the article said, it isn't worth it to do the job for less than the most I can get paid. And, um, Right, right, you know, this, in a similar vein, it was sad to me in the article to see the American Hospital Association go on the defensive with um, complaints about staffing and costs rather than then with proactive measures to, re to restore trust and reduce stress. So those were really my takeaways from the article. I, it was very good. I appreciate it. Thank you, Trustee Jensen. I do see trust, I can see from here, Trustee Blue's hand is up. Trustee Blue comments, Madam. Um, uh, for me, I thought the article resonated. And, and um, when I started uh, nursing at San Francisco General, uh, there was a severe shortage, not only at San Francisco General, but across the nation. And, you know, I, you know, I think about our nurses at our hospitals who have quit and gone to work for the registry because they get paid more and they can pick and choose when they work and where they work um, and what we can do to address that. And I know that 
the HR team and the senior leadership team are trying to address that and trying to figure out how do we keep our nurses and what do we do to um, decrease the cost of registry. Um, I don't know if, I, I just think it's a vicious cycle. And um, I was in a Las Vegas yesterday meeting with uh, some nurses there because uh, I've, I've, I've done work there over the past four or five years. And they, they are uh, suffering the same thing. They cannot keep up with the patient load. Uh, and in Las Vegas, it's, uh, they don't have regulations like California does in terms of having nurse to patient ratios. They don't even use an assessment tool, which I was a shock. They were like, what's an assessment tool? And I was a shock because um, I thought those standards were the same across the country. Um, but they also talked about an increase in recruiting nurses, uh, predominantly Filipino nurses from the Philippines, because we are not producing nurses in this country like we need to. And then the other thing that uh, brings to my mind is that we had an opportunity 20, 30 years ago to take a look at our LVMs and take a look at that workforce as you know, future registered nurses. And we didn't take advantage of that, which is really a shame. And so now we don't have any LVMs in acute care at all. And when I started as an RN in ICU at San Francisco General, we actually had one LVN. And then she got forced out of there. She was, you know, she didn't get the sickest patients, but, you know, she was skilled enough. And she went back to the wards. And then eventually she got moved out of there because they wanted only RNs, uh, licensed RNs, um, as, as opposed to having LVNs also doing patient care. And we've seen that workforce either go to the outpatient clinics or uh, to the nursing home industry. And that was where the majority of licensed nurses in terms of nurses of color, that was where they were. And we've had programs way before I started nursing that acknowledged that and also had programs that brought in LVNs. It was called the 4040 program where they worked uh, 20 hours but got paid for 40. And then the other 20 was working um, towards their RN degree. And that's how we increased LVMs coming into the RN workforce. So anyway, that's my thoughts on that, but it's, it's very scary. Yes, ma'am. It's very scary. Thank you for those comments, Trustee Blue. Trustee Esteem. Yeah, I appreciate your comments, Trustee Blue. You know, as a, uh, a registered nurse, there were, especially one who's worked in the psychiatric field. Um, mm -hmm. The shortage, I think, is exacerbated. We've seen it amongst our physicians. We've talked about it in our meetings uh, here, and it's the same for, for nurses. And I think, actually, the two articles you chose, Dr. Chair, are quite telling, and they are related. Um, there's a quote, a couple quotes that stuck out to me in this first article. Uh, I built my whole identity around being the toughest person I knew, and it was shattering to admit that I was broken and needed help. 
That uh, that is a, a a feeling that resonates deeply, and I think actually gets to the core of why we have seen this great resignation. Um, I definitely can relate to being, to feeling like, no matter how much you work, uh, there's a never-ending need. And what what you're talking about, Trustee Blue, uh, the need for the workforce, and workforce development, and a pipeline of providers, is so real. And I appreciate a quote that follows um, that says, I was growing increasingly concerned about how inhumane our profession is. There's no culture of physicians organizing and fighting for their rights, but that's something we should think about to leverage the outrage and frustration that people have. And I think that actually we've seen that here at AHS, um, that physicians and our nursing staff, our entire medical staff went on strike is how uh, I and several other board members uh, became trustees because there was an uprising amongst the staff, a demand for better for patient care and for the way staff are treated. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, COVID has pushed a lot of folks to their limits. It's pushed our public to the limit, it's pushed our providers to the limit. And, um, the next article talks about the financial considerations that are often left out of the conversation, but the financial considerations that push our health system to uh, have less and less monetary investment and less and less uh, room to allow for what would be healthy, you know, a, a capacity of 85% or less instead of overcrowding. Um, consolidation of hospitals and closures instead of having space for more patients to have care, especially, you know, nobody could predict that we'd be in this three-year pandemic that, you know, is going to last many lifetimes, but here we are. And a just-in-time healthcare system just does not prepare for worldwide need. And we already had exacerbated need, but now it's even more so, you know, all that to say, I, I can completely understand why people organize and start to uh, try to change the conditions upon which we exist. Thank you for the article. Thanks for your comments, Trustee Steen. Trustee Fox and then Trustee Splendorio. Um, having worked in other industries before healthcare and then working in hospitals and being married to a healthcare worker, I've really been, always been very impressed by how hard healthcare workers work across the whole spectrum from physicians all the way down to aides and, and uh, PTAs and pharmacy techs and whatever. Uh, skipping breaks, scripting lunch, doing everything possible to get all your charges in before the end of the day, uh, whatever it is, uh, being on the edge in terms of being able to handle it all. And this is before COVID, okay? So it's not any surprise that piling COVID and adding the compounding emotional distress to all of the underlying stress and tension that were in people's jobs all the way along, you know, the push for productivity, uh, quality, and everything else, it's no surprise. Uh, the system is just wound tighter than it can bear. And that's why we're seeing what we're seeing. Yes, sir. Trustee Splendorio, thank you for those comments. 
Um, well, I'm not going to disagree that you need to recruit more, but I, uh, to me, the, the first article was more interesting in, for me in that it, it only raised questions for me. So I decided to do a little research myself because it said in there that I think you said, Taft, that 20% of well, the healthcare workers or RNs are, are retired as a result. Well, they made it sound like a result of COVID. I, and I, my, my gut tells me that's not accurate. But then I dig a little digging and I say, well, what do you mean retired? I mean, retired to what? You know, it's not like, uh, I'm sorry, you know, my wife's an RN and she didn't exactly, uh, you know, retire to a huge pension. So I'm like, well, to retire to what? So I did a little digging and the research is, you know, in 2020, 50% of all RNs are over 60 or 65 or over. So what happened is COVID, if anything, accelerated a demographic problem. And so in my opinion, this is only a tip of an iceberg. We have a much bigger problem, at least with our ends. So it's it's not, you know, the problem is we gotta we gotta get more. And the question is how? Anyway, that's how I got out of it. Trustee Banerjee. Yeah. Again, um, agree with all the comments that have been made before. And I think one of the things is that when we had waves like this, they've been episodic and so you work. Our healthcare system is used to having something like this happen for you know a few months or the other, and then it stabilizes. But having it go on for a third year is where there's the this kind of relentless pressure is also what causes that kind of fatigue and exhaustion. And I feel that gig healthcare workers are seeing folks at their most vulnerable, at their most accurately, and caregivers every in every place are just struggling to be able to do that for the folks who are um, doing uh, so. Um, and moving forward, as we think about like the pipeline and how we do this is that this wave will continue. I don't think in the near future, we will see more waves of this coming. We are going to live with some element of COVID in the near future. And the question is then how from these two years of what we've seen and what we've learned, what do we need to do to be able to prepare better for, um, for the shortage and the resignation. Thank you, Trustee Manager. Trustee Chapman. Hi, good evening. Um, I, I agree with all the trustees and what they've said. And one of the thing I one of the things that I just wanted to mention is that our docs and nurses um, are doing an amazing job, but they are also human beings. And they are physically and mentally challenged as well. Not only our docs and nurses, that's our entire healthcare staff. Just pick someone. I thought about, I talked to a custodian um, maybe about a week and a half ago that was at one of the hospitals. And he was saying that the COVID unit, it takes them about two hours or a little over two hours to clean a room. And then after you clean the room, you have to let it air out for some time before that. And then, you know, the docs that have to put on their PPE equipment and go in and take it off, that's physically and mentally draining. So it would be nice to have something that's a mental health component that's ongoing, not just in a crisis mode, but that's ongoing that allows the that work family balance um, to happen. I, I do agree that we need to get more because as, you know, as people leave, more people get more overtime and more work and it's just it, it'll become cyclical if we don't do something about it so i thought it was a great article thank you 
Thank you, Trustee Chapman. Uh, I think I'm going to bring this article to a close. We have one more article, but I'll say uh, uh, thoughtfulness of our employees is a core principle for this for this for this uh, health system. And we have venues to have these discussions, which include here and Trustee Blue, as you chair the HR committee. So we we still have more venues to continue these dialogues. Uh, of course, no. And I will be. I didn't see that yellow. I didn't see that hand. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I should have done it here. It's James Jackson. I just wanted to share. I had the pleasure of participating in the California Hospital Association board meeting today, and one of the key topics was staffing and what these hospital executives foresee as the staffing challenge that we're all dealing with and how long they think it will last. And it was very interesting because. The majority of the executives from hospitals across the state felt like this is a five to seven year issue. Some thought it was one to two, you know, another group thought it was perhaps three to five, but the preponderance of people thought it was a, a five to seven year challenge that we were facing. They also had data from um, the nursing, the, the nursing leadership organization. Nursing leaders felt the same. So healthcare leaders across the state are racing for dealing with shorting staffing shortages for the next five to seven years. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. So I'm a lot more on that. With that, we'll move to Article 2, as I'm already chewing up time, but we're having dialogue, so that means it's worth it. Article 2 was entitled Emergency Department Crowding, the Canary in the Health System. I picked this article because, uh, quite frankly, when I'm in my office, I hear code red surge all the time. And uh, in my when I open my email, there's there there's an email saying we're in code red surge. So it seems to be that we're in a perpetual state of code red surge, and um, it's almost like become like background noise. You know, when for those of us who are who work been in ICU, sometimes the monitors go off all the time, and you just hit silence. And and sometimes it feels like that. So I wanted to bring 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 that back. Uh, uh, I'm going to read a quote from the top of the article. Emergency department crowding is a sentinel indicator of health system functioning. While often dismissed as a mere inconvenience for patients, the impact of the ED crowding on available patient morbidity and mortality is well documented, but remains largely unappreciated. The physical and moral harm experienced by ED staff is also substantial. Uh, I, like, I like the articles which sort of propose some solutions, so I'm going to uh, cut to the chase. There were five core solutions and key actions that, that these authors described. It's kind of a long article, uh, uh, you know, 12, 13 pages, but I suggest those of us who are interested, there's some good stuff in here. Not all of it applies, but, but, but good stuff. Number one, ED crowding must be acknowledged as a serious risk to patient safety, not just an operational issue. This, this actually is a quality issue. Number two, this problem will not get better without serious buy-in from senior most institutional leadership. I think we got that. Um, so, uh, but it reminds us that we need to keep focused on it. Number three, healthcare financing must realign reimbursements from current practices. Quite frankly, I don't think that, that one really applies to us in this, in this case, as, as it does in many of the private hospitals, which were probably included here. Number four, Regulators like CMS and the Joint Commission must clearly address the impact of crowding on patient safety, its potentiation of violence, and its implications for staff well-being. I, I, I actually I thought that was pretty smart. If the, if the Joint Commission said, hey, this is a regulatory issue that you've had 
any hospital so many co-red surges over a period and they bring down some enforcement, that becomes a different issue for them. Last, crowding is predictive and enforceable preemptive surge plans must be generated and actuated. We actually do have code red surge plans here. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, does it execute perfectly every time? No, you know, welcome to a system. But the fact is that we do have these plans which are in place. And then I think our royal we job is to make sure that everyone is, is aware of that. So with that, I'll close out and ask if there are any comments on this emergency department crowding issue. Yeah. Trustee Banerjee. I had, and I, I thought this article was really great, and I wanted to look at the table and see which ones resonate with you. But one thing that they didn't focus on as much that so applies to us is that one of the reasons we have overcrowding in the ED is because people use ED as their primary care space. And so, there, you know, we think about throughput and we think about all of that and all of it, and how do we create that primary care that so that folks are not coming to the ED as this as this is their space for primary care. So that too, I think, uh, uh, is so germane to us and in because as a county hospital and as the, we're probably not so much in other places, but when the affordable, uh, what was interesting to me to see that when people started getting, when the Affordable Care Act happened and people started getting insurance but the practices need time to change you Absolutely. don't then just re remember that oh now i have insurance i have to go twice a year for my wellness you still use the ed and so that just you know exact uh, uh, so it continues and so i think that part of like seeing throughput seeing like the financial seeing all of that and really beefing up the primary care I, I think you made a great comment, and, and even if we offer those things, as we're striving to do, behavioral change takes so much of it. Yeah. For years, probably you know, for decades, the ED was a place for refill of medicines. Not yeah. as much as anymore as our primary care access is probably the best it's been in the history of this organization. But even then, practice, uh, personal practice patterns, right. I think, still dominate. So I think we have to make it easy for our patients to realize that there are other places than the ED. Uh, of course, Dr. Um This article actually um, is very related to an article that actually Dr. Barry Simon sent to a few of us uh, this week. And in this article, uh, which I know is not in the pocket, but I think it's an, it contains some important statistics uh, that I'll read through, that the article analyzed over 26 million people who presented to the emergency department, so a huge data set. And what they found, these authors, in their conclusion and analysis of this data set, is that there was an increased risk of mortality the longer you stay in the ED if you're an admitted patient. And I'll read the sentence. For every 82 admitted patients whose time to inpatient bed transfer is delayed beyond six to eight hours from the time of arrival to the ED, there is one extra death. Dr. Tornbenny, will you say that one more time? Yes. So for every 82 admitted patients whose time to inpatient transfer is delayed beyond six to eight hours from the time of arrival to ED, there is one extra death. It's wow. a staggering. That is staggering. And thank you to Dr. Simon for sending us. 
Could you say that? Sure. Trustee Jensen, then Mr. Frasky. Um, to Dr. Turner-Bennett's point, really, I, I got that out of the article as well. I think that um, that we, but but I also am seeing that Alameda Health System is doing things to address this, which is doing positive things um, by expanding things like expanding clinic hours and continuing with telemedicine and um, and really what I was focused on in, in addition to the organizational issues and the staffing issues is the patient harms as Dr. Turner-Benny mentioned. These, the, there are patient harms and, and the treatment delays, ambulance delays, which we're seeing diversions of ambulances, these are all happening because EDs are, are overcrowded. And um, one of the things that was touched on in the article, but not very much, is how legislation can be used to address this, including the um, allowing or continuing or just um, establishing telemedicine as an appropriate and effective way to, to treat patients so that there are patients, so that care is available. The article also talks about the, the hours of the, how EDs are used, which um, Dr. Chair pointed out to EDs are often used and, and can Kenny about EDs being used for primary care. We know this is definitely an issue here at Alameda Health System. So. Um, the, the other things that could change that I feel strongly about are that the reimbursement structure needs to change. You can't, you can't incentivize hospitals to keep patients or uh, to admit patients or to keep patients longer with reimbursement structures that do so. So it, um, finally, finally, I just want to say that uh, uh, the rising admissions while acute care beds are being reduced, we're going up with emissions and we're going down with acute care beds. And so colleagues, um, I urge you to consider how ED crowding at Highland will be impacted if Alameda Hospital PP is closed in 2030. Thank you, Trustee Jensen. Mr. Fratsky, sir. Um, just a real quick comment. <clears throat> you know, I'm really um, proud of the work that we're undertaking here. Uh, Mark Brown and his physician leaders are leading around throughput. Our issue, at, our issue at Highland specifically is not so much that we can't handle the ongoing volume in the ED. I mean, it's episodic where we would have difficulty. The issue really lies up on our nursing units when we've got 40 patients, uh, probably a day that have a 10 day or plus length of stay. Getting people out to create space is probably our biggest issue we have. And it gets to what Dr. Tornabeni says that people sit in the ED um, so we're really resolved to trying to crack that nut after many years. And, you know, to your point, um, Trustee Taft, the, the, the behavior just becomes so inculcated and so routine in terms of the cadence and the pace and how we handle things, it's hard to change. So we've got a lot of work to do, but, you know, we're very, very committed to it. So just my impressions. Yes, sir. Any other comments on this article? I've already gone 10 minutes. Oh, just a quick one. Um, to the point that Mark just made, Mark Brown, thank you very much, Mark Brown, who was on the call, noted that there are five ED boarders as of right now. So, and that's uh, a testament to the, the work that that team is doing to really try to drive down the number of boarded patients. They, in very recent past, it was often double digits, um, you know, in, into the code red that you alluded to. And, uh, that team is working very hard to change that dynamic. Thank you, Mr. Jackson. I guess my closing comments on this, it, it, it's a theme we've discussed over the years. 
the concept of congestive hospital failure, right, uh, as, as, as a parallel to congestive uh, heart failure. Uh, the ED is sort of the influx, right, what, and why are they influxing? Maybe they don't have other access points. We have issues within our own hospital, and I know this executive team is working hard. Last month we heard about MRI. You know, that's one of the things, that's the pump. That's one of the things which contributes to the pump, how we flow within the hospital. A huge problem that we have is actually the outflow tract. Where can we put our patients who can't be discharged at home? Therefore, they sit in the hospital. Therefore, the TV gets overcrowded, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm, I'm happy to see that, uh, that uh, this administration is trying to attack all components of the, of the failing, uh, the congestive hospital failure. The outflow tract, the movement, the, the pump within, and then the overcrowding is, 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 is an issue that needs to be addressed. So I don't see any other, oh, sorry, trustee esteem. Thank you, Dr. Chair. I apologize for coming in at the end of this, but uh, there is another part of this article, which you really chose some rich articles this week. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, you know, in addition to thinking about financial incentives and motives for shrinking our hospitals and shrinking our inpatient capacity and delaying in the ER. I just have to beat the drum as a psych nurse and point out that this article also included the impact on psych patients. And there's a bit that stood out to me. It says, data show that behavioral health patients are disproportionately affected by boarding. Thus, it is common to have patients with acute psychiatric issues stay in the, in the ED for three to five days or more while trying to find an accepting inpatient facility. Issues related to placement of psychiatric patients during the pandemic extended reporting upwards of 10 days and even more in some of our facilities. Uh, and we know that when folks who have psych issues are in the hospital in the emergency room, they're not getting treated appropriately. They may get meds, but meds are really not enough. Uh, and this leads to issues around safety not only for the patient, but for every patient and every staff member. Um, it's, it's really interesting. I, I appreciate this one quote that is stood out in purple and I'll just share it as well. And then I'll stop. The profound lack of both inpatient and outpatient psychiatric substance use services and the labyrinthian processes for psychiatric services, services driven by Byzantine insurance coverage have placed extraordinary pressure on EDs further inpatient psych beds have decreased. I think it speaks to one of my, you know, the, the drum I beat all the time is that we need more psych care, inpatient, outpatient, community-based care. And, uh, you know, I just say, thank you for sharing this again. And I'm excited for the work that we're doing at AHS, but this is an issue that is bigger than us, bigger than one system. It's our entire healthcare system. Thank you, trustee esteem. I'll close out the discussion of the articles and give option to Madam Vice President or Madam Secretary Treasurer as Executive Officers if they have anything to talk about. I think um, our, our Vice President. I actually do. Thank you, um, Dr. Chair. I uh, first let me just um, thank Trustee Esteen. I also I, I agree with your your last comment, and um, let me just take this opportunity to point out to the AHS board um, that in Alameda, the City of Alameda. The, Alameda Fire Department um, and in cooperation and partnership with Alameda Family Services has established a new program called the CARES program, which is a um, paramedic and mental health service person 
who are called out to 911 emergency calls that aren't that aren't um, physical injuries, that aren't life-threatening emergency calls, that are um, someone who who is agitated and needs treatment, et cetera, but does not need an emergency transport. So this is program's been going on for about four months. We heard recently from the Alameda Health Care District Board, heard from the fire chief at our meeting on Monday, and this has reduced both ED admissions and especially 5150 um, holds by significant numbers, significant amounts. I think I know Mark Kresge's heard some of the information about the program, and this is one way to your point, um, Jennifer, that mental health, re-looking and re-addressing re the mental health needs and mental health emergency um, admissions is really, really a way to affect the crowding in the emergency department. And so I know Oakland's moving forward in other areas in the, um, in the Bay Area, other cities in the Bay Area moving forward with this these types of programs, and it's really been shown to be effective, at least in Alameda. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention to my colleagues is that um, our representative for Alameda and San Leandro, uh, Assemblymember Mia Bonta, has introduced a bill in the Assembly. I hope that some of you will, will join me in, in supporting, and if you have friends in the Assembly. This is um, AB 2904. It's a bill that will extend the Alameda Hospital seismic compliance by seven years. And it is, um, it was introduced, it's in the Assembly Health Committee at this time. And I believe there's gonna be a hearing in um, sometime in the next three to four weeks in Assembly Health Committee. So um, that's, it's really a great step forward. We're very excited and we're advocating in Alameda, Alameda Healthcare District, the City of Alameda leaders, elected, and others. So if you want more information, please let me know. Debbie Stevens will be here, I believe, at our next meeting next month to share more information. But this is kind of on a fast track, so keep an eye. Thank you. Thank you, Trustee. Trustee Blue, I see your hand up. Just on the uh, psychiatric patients, I just want to put in a plug for the IOP program because when I first started on the board, there was a threat to eliminate the program or to shrink it. And I think this just goes to show um, as our psychiatric patient load increases that we really do need that program to expand so that we keep them out of the hospital, right? And there are psych clinics throughout the country where RNs are putting their license on the line because they are doing things that are um, not accepted where they will keep patients, psychiatric patients so that they don't have to get admitted, but they don't want to discharge them from the clinic out to the public knowing that there are still issues and that they're going to end up back in the ER. And I have direct experience on that having represented uh, nurses in the psych area. So another plug for the IOP, whatever you can do to expand that program will also help our system. Thank you, Trustee Blue. And I can put this on kind of our, our tracking calendar and I'd invite our COO and our CMO at a future date to give an update on the IOP, which I'll preview with probably might you find, you might find refreshing Trustee Blue. Uh, so we'll, we'll put that uh, on a future action item for discussion. 
Uh, Trustee Esteen, Madam Secretary Treasurer, any comments as we close out this section, which I've blown? <laughs> I gave it 15, we're at 45. <laughs> I'll be brief. Just to say that as our nation approaches the millionth COVID death, that I have been heartened by the numbers I've seen here at AHS. And I also am concerned because as we reduce masking and all the provisions within our society at large, um, I do worry about what's to come. And so I encourage everyone to get vaccinated if you're eligible to get boosted and to continue wearing a mask when you're in public spaces for the sake of us all. Thank you, Madam Secretary. With that, we'll close out item A. I really, really appreciate the dialogue. Uh, um, very much appreciate it. That's why we're here. Let's go to item B, our CEO report. Our CEO is here. He just got off a plane to rush here and he made it. And uh, we'll give the mic to him. Mr. Jackson, sir. Thank you very much, Chair Bouquet. And um, Ronna, I will, I will share screen if that's okay. Thank you. <clears throat> Happy to have time locked back, Mr. Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> Message received. <laughs> I will. I screwed. I screwed it up so you can that uh, you can dig me out. Of the <laughs> happy, happy to do so. I will move expediently through my report, and I'm obviously happy to take any questions that the trustees or the community has at the end. Um, so, starting with our operations update, um, I wanted to just take a moment and acknowledge that. The Board of Supervisors has recently um, made the decision that this campus will be renamed in honor of our supervisor, Wilma Chan, who passed unfortunately a few months ago. And so um, this was um, extracted from the statement that I shared with the organization. An important distinction is that it is the campus that will be named for Supervisor Chan. The Highland name will remain for the buildings. Um, but, and the correct name um, for the K building, but it's this campus that will become the Wilma Chan campus. And that's a, it's a nuance, but it's an important distinction. And so I just wanted to be pretty explicit about that with our staff. Um, and I think it's a great honor to Supervisor Chan and to this organization. She was stalwart, she was our champion. And um, I could not think of a better person to have this campus named in honor of. If I could, Jane. Yes, um, please. Just, I noticed yesterday in the, um, I think it was the East Bay Times, they had an article about it and they said it was that the hospital would be renamed. So they got it wrong. They, they did, and that's a kind of a common misperception, yeah. which is why I was pretty explicit yeah. in what I shared. Um, but I did vet this with the supervisors, um, with the, the county administrator, with the supervisors, to make sure that my understanding right. was in fact correct. And so um, I think in time it will become clear to people, but right now a lot of folks are suffering under that misperception. But that will work itself out. But thank you for pointing that out. And that's, that is a concern. Moving to patient experience, I'm going to buzz through these slides quickly, but then you'll have these packets to go into more detail. This is pertaining to the culture of safety survey. You'll recall that our goal was to have an 80% response rate. We had a 70% response rate last year, which was good. We wanted 80%. And I'm happy to say that we achieved 74%. It's not the target, but um, as you will see in the subsequent slides, it's, we have, uh, in five of the eight areas, we increased the 
participation percentage over last year. And so on this slide, you can see that Alameda Hospital did fantastic. They had a 94% response rate. Um, ambulatory was at 81. Highland Hospital was at 96%. And um, San Angelo was at 84. So all exceeded the target, which is just phenomenal. This is the slide that I made reference to. You can see year over year, you can see that Alameda Hospital exceeded their participation rate last year. Um, um, the same is true with ambulatory care dramatically. They went over, um, they went 81 versus 62 last time. Behavioral health was pretty flat. They were at 69 last year, they were at 67 this year. Highland again, a dramatic jump from 68% to 96%. Um, Post-acute went down a little bit, but then San Leandro had a big jump and um, service support center went down by five percentage points. And then the physicians went up by 13 percentage points. So all in all, most of the groups did show pretty significant increases over last year. These are the departments, the individual departments that achieved 100%. I will not read them to you, but again, you'll have this for your review. But I thought it was significant that we had so many departments that all of their staff give us the benefit. Um, Dr. Chair is fond of saying all feedback is a gift, and I think this is a graphic illustration of that. And I'm excited to get the results and have the opportunity to synthesize them. And then finally, um, what's next? And so the leaders will be receiving their results uh, fairly soon here in mid-April. And then again, as we did last year, they'll share these results with their staff. That's something that staff told us the past one and a half months. They weren't receiving the benefit of this, which is why in part they were reluctant to participate because they said we, we never hear the feedback. And so we'll be pushing that out. The leaders will be trained on how to facilitate uh, these sessions. And then they will um, go through the process of building a plan to address the issues that the staff have identified to them. So uh, really looking forward to it. And that's summarized at the top. There's the content plus the so survey results plus the debriefing will result in the action plan. Moving to our workforce, um, very quickly, the rounding continues. I'm going, you know, I have two rounding days identified a week and others such as Dr. Tornabene, Mark Kraxke, Mark Amy, Roe Lofton and others um, are regularly rounding. And so you can see the number of sessions that I've had and that's just um, magnified by the other um, C-team leaders who are going out and spending time at all of our facilities. Kind of a subset of that, but we had Doctor's Day a few weeks ago and I really need to just acknowledge Dr. Tornabinet. Um, Felicia worked closely with our foundation, put together really wonderful gift boxes. Um, I almost took a picture of one to show you and I decided to spare you that, but there were a lot of really nice items in there. One in particular that really received a lot of attention were the mugs. There were three different, well, there were actually six different designs, I think, right? And um, the foundation commissioned a local artist to do the design based on the Loteria cards, and they were in English and Spanish, and so you could have a variation on the color or on the icon, and there was the heart, the healing hand, and the physician's coat, and then it was uh, in English and Spanish. And so the doctors really were having fun. It was great. And so Felicia and I went to all facilities, and we delivered them and just spend some time with the physicians and the dentists and the advanced practice providers at all of the facilities and just the excitement. Um, opening their boxes to see which month they got, it was just so cool. And I shared some of the comments um, on the right side of my document here. And so we have three different comments that we received after the event where um, these providers were just expressing their gratitude for the recognition and the attention. And so going back to our earlier 
conversation about what, what can we do to help people be fortified um, and continue to do this very hard work after what we've been through for the past two plus years. A gift box is not going to do it, but recognizing these providers and acknowledging what they've gone through and what they give to this organization, I think is a step in the right direction. So thank you, Dr. Tornabene, and thank you to Preston Walton, uh, Michaela, and the rest of the foundation crew. I, I share with you often my walks, and so here are some photos from the most recent walks. Um, uh, Trustee Splendorio came out to our Lake Merritt walk um, a couple of Saturdays ago, and um, Trustee Jensen and her husband and her dog came out this past week over to Alameda and we walked the beach. Um, you want and to point out why you're wearing that hat instead of the hair? I, I will share why I'm wearing the hat. <laughs> Not only is it stylish, but um, <laughs> we were walking and a, a young man on the beach said he, he noticed our, our cool blue hats and he said, boy, your hats are really nice. And he, you know, he was very, very kind. And so I offered him my hat. And so he was excited. Uh, Mario Harding, who was standing there, he said, he must think you're a basketball player. And I said, maybe Muzzy Bowes. <laughs> As we were walking away, we heard this voice behind us kind of calling out, and the young man came running up. And that was his hat, the one that I'm wearing there, because he said, I don't want you to get sunburned, so why don't you take my hat? So um, we did a, a little hat exchange. Thank you for calling that out. So um, the, the walks will continue. It's a great time for us to get to know each other in a different way. Just a quick update on COVID-19. Um, and I think you heard this evening that we were at zero patients today. Um, we've had zero a couple of days this week. That's pretty remarkable. Um, and you know, knock on wood, um, hopefully the numbers will remain low. We do expect that there may be a bit of a surge given that the masking mandates have been relaxed in the county. But um, we are prepared in the event that the numbers do go up. Right now we are um, very pleased to be at zero. You can see that our number of vaccinated employees has remained steady at 95%. Um, we are now 93% uh, fully boosted, um, one of the first booster. We're not requiring a second booster because that's not a requirement by the county at this time. If and when that does become a requirement, we would change our protocol. But right now, we are, it's voluntary for individuals and employees to get the second booster. And that second booster is available, so it's happening right around the corner. And so if staff want to get the second booster, they can do it, but they get it as a patient and not because of their employment. And then this is a slide about the governance process. And not a lot to share, except that we have had three meetings so far, and that we have another four meetings scheduled, a fifth if necessary, in July. But the intent is that the process will come to conclusion um, in June. Um, Dr. Bouquet and I participate on the, the task force, but the only members of the committee, again, are the two supervisors. So we are there along with other members of labor and from the healthcare services agency and other organizations as uh, contributors, but the decision makers will be the supervisors. Chair Bouquet, anything you'd like to add? About I that? think you handled it perfectly, sir. You're a gentleman. <laughs> Um, and coming to the end of my report, um, this is a flyer for the Soul of Spring, which is the Foundation's event, which will be coming up in May. And um, it's going to be a really nice event. Here's a quick synopsis of the event. This is uh, the, the next iteration of what used to be the gala. And so we're very excited. It's going to be at a venue right next to the bridge, um, to the Bay Bridge. Um, it, will be a, it won't be a sit-down dining affair, but it will be more free-flowing. 
Um, but we're very excited about this. Uh, Thelma Houston is going to be performing, as well as the Bay Area Music Collective called Jazz Mafia. And um, really encouraging any and all to come and participate. I think it's going to be a great time. And our own Dr. Swift is now a co-chair Correct. Uh, yes, she is, that's right. Thank you. She is the co-chair of the foundation board. This is a, I have presented previously about the Swartz rounds and the topic, which is tomorrow, will be the other side, how our personal experiences of healthcare inform our work. I don't mean to scare anybody away from Swartz rounds, but one of the featured speakers will be one James Jackson. And so I'm going to have an opportunity to share my, my journey and how I came to choose this career and what it's meant to me, along with Chantel Garcia and Marco Fernandez. And, and trustees are invited to that. So. Oh, most assuredly, yes. I, I would strongly encourage any trustees who are interested. It is a Zoom event, and so I would really encourage trustees to participate if they are able and inclined. And trustees, that should be in your AHS email, the invitation. Yes. Yeah, they come out pretty frequently. Yes, indeed. And that concludes my report. Happy to take any questions or, or comments. Thank you, Mr. Jackson. A great, clean, quick report. Trustees looking around the room for any uh, questions of our CEO. Wow, and you did it. Okay. <laughs> hello, hello. All right. Um, thank you, Mr. Jackson, sir, for that for that thoughtful walk through our organization. Let's, well, with that, we'll close item B, and we'll go to item C, the medical staff reports. We know this is a standing agenda item to hear directly from our medical staff leaders. We have Dr. Irina Williams, who's the chief of the medical staff for uh, Alameda Health System. We have Dr. Idris uh, Azali, who's uh, the SLH leadership committee, and uh, Dr. Nikki Joshi, who's the chief of the Alameda Hospital medical staff. Uh, good evening, all. Um, let's open up with Dr. Azali. Uh, trying, just trying to mix it up. Good evening, sir. Hi, good evening, everyone. Happy Wednesday evening. Um, good to be here. Um, I am going to share my screen. Uh, Ron, can we, or, or uh, Councilor Meek, share screen. Okay, I hope you can see that. Pretty good. Okay, uh, San Leandro Leadership uh, Committee uh, updates. Uh, San Leandro Hospital, I'm happy to announce, has a formal cardiology call panel. Uh, which started on March 22nd. This is progress. It's uh, uh, very much welcome. Uh, the uh, CDPH Imtala survey has ended with a corrective action plan that has already been responded to by our quality team. Uh, very much appreciative uh, of the insight and the learning opportunities that were taken away from that. Um, there is some chronic problems that plague San Leandro Hospital that uh, came up um, that I have listed here, uh, staffing shortages, uh, uh, support for uh, leaders, um, especially when it comes to onboarding um, and HR related issues such as uh, scheduling. Um, there's a uh, unusually high leadership turnover uh, within the hospital. I think uh, system-wide uh, that makes it tough to keep a consistent message uh, of culture. Um, however, there was also opportunities for, for learning and modifying process in the, in the emergency department for patient arrival and uh, uh, evaluation. 
that I think will be uh, a positive change. Um, one of those uh, changes that had started before the Mtala survey, but I think plays a role in here, is the ED arrival and registration uh, renovation. Uh, we are more than one month since go live and I had promised to share some data, which I have here uh, to share with you. This is very promising data. Uh, I'm not uh, banking on it just yet. I'm hoping for uh, reproduction and hopefully even improvement uh, on this. Uh, for the volume that we see, I think it's pretty impressive that we can uh, uh, show these metrics. Uh, what I've done here is uh, this gray column in the middle is uh, January of this year, but there were some other changes in the, in the department such as construction uh, and flooring changes that, that may have impacted things. So I also included uh, two other months, December, uh, was the last full month since Epic Olive that we had a, that I had available to share with you, and then uh, mid May, which was a summer month. Uh, so uh, I share that with you. Uh, the top number is a patient arrival to triage start. So that's basically when a patient is entered into Epic uh, until triage is started. Uh, back in December, that was at nine minutes. Uh, in May of 21, that was 11 minutes. In January, pre, uh, uh, the same as uh, May. And then uh, on March 21st, so month to date average uh, for that month was five minutes, which is a 54% improvement, uh, which is pretty impressive. And then arrival to provider, so entry into EPIC of patient's arrival until there is a contact with either a uh, physician or an advanced uh, practice provider. Uh, that went from an average of 16 minutes in January of 22 to 10 minutes in uh, March of 22. Uh, arrival to room placement, also uh, an important uh, metric. Uh, that went from 27 minutes in January to 14 minutes uh, in March. Uh, another important metric, arrival to ECG or EKG, um, went from 37 minutes to 21 minutes. Uh, although that's a 43% improvement, uh, the hope is that we can get that down uh, to about 10 minutes, which is which is the, the, the stated goal. Um, and we'll see, we'll see what happens. The overall length of stay in the emergency department, this is for all admitted and discharged patients, was 168 minutes uh, in, in December 2020, 178 minutes in January, and 154 minutes in March. Uh, that's a decrease of 12%. I'm not exactly sure if that's statistically significant, but uh, it is an improvement uh, and happy to see it. Uh, I wanted to acknowledge Dr. Ari Edelheit, our uh, cardiology liaison, uh, who has uh, put a lot of work and effort into reducing this time to ECG. Um, and then finally, I also wanted to share some pictures with you from the San Leandro Emergency Department. Uh, so these panels on the right are the newly introduced panels. There's three separate panels along here uh, where uh, patient arrival and triage happens. There's three cubicles. Uh, this is the waiting room. So this view is from the entry into the lobby from the parking lot. And then this is what one of the cubicles looks like. So this is for the triage nurse or uh, registration clerk. And then the patient sits here. Uh, we're going to be making a, a little bit of modification to window size here, but generally this is this is what it looks like. Um, and uh, 
happy that things are moving in the right direction here. Uh, those are all the updates I have for you. There are some more I'll have during the QPSC later this month, uh, but I'll, I'll pause here for questions. Zali, thank you for that really well-written report, and it, it's very digestible for the trustees, so I really appreciate it. Trustees, any questions of Dr. Afzali? Wonderful to see that trend um, and just significant um, improvements in the waiting time for triage and all of that in, in each of those elements. So thanks to the team for, for the work. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, I've been informed that there was a public comment on this. I, I, I'm willing to receive that public comment for okay. here. I, I, I think, uh, actually, I see two okay. hands up. Is that, are there two public comments? Yeah, uh, Lisa and Aaron Mawada and Aaron Mandel. So I believe there's three. I, and, and my question, uh, Madam Clerk, is this on this subject of San Leandro? That is my understanding. Okay. If you give me just one moment, I'll set up the timer. I'm sorry, I was not prepared. Yes, ma'am. One moment. Okay, so uh, I, I think we're going to make allowance for public comment. If it's on this agenda item, um, uh, uh, public commenters, uh, this is for Lisa. This is Lisa's iPhone. Mawada Kamara, Miss Kamara, good to see you. And there is a third, but I can't see it. Who is it? I think it's. I only see two hands, but let's just start off. So, um, for uh, for public comment, a little bit of rules of the game. We're we're, we're going to set the timer at three minutes. I please it, make it uh, appropriate to this subject matter. Otherwise, we sort of we had public comment at the top of the of the day. Um, so, uh, Lisa, why don't you go first? If you'll introduce yourself, Lisa. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Okay, actually, I would, I would, uh, I am not an ERRN, although I am um, a CNA nurse uh, rep at the hospital. I would like to uh, donate my time uh, to charge ER charge RN Mawada uh, Kamara to be followed by ER nurse Lori Mandel. Ma'am, I don't think we donate time to one, so I'll give you the space. And Ms. Kamara can, can have her time at, at three minutes. So do you have any other comments or should we uh, just go on? No, I, I think it'd, uh, it would be a more cogent presentation if Mawada started. Okay, thank you, Lisa. Ms. Kamara, how are you? I'm fine, thank you, how are you? I'm doing well, hold on, let me see if I can see. There you go, okay. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, please, you have three minutes on the clock. Uh, um, let us hear what you have to say. Okay. Um, we have been having a series of changes in the emergency room, as Dr. Azali just represented. Um, and with all of these changes, we've met with uh, the administration to let them know uh, both union 1021 and CNA has told management that we have some serious safety concerns about all of the changes that were happening in the emergency room. They were happening with very little direction to the staff. They happened overnight. Um, and most of the times we got emails with diaphragms and we just came to work and we just had to make it work. Um, there are a couple of things that are missing. Um, I understand Dr. Azali shared some data from a couple of months ago and how they improved in March. What was also significant in March is that we had two extra texts that were sent to the hospital by the state. 
those texts were instrumental in giving patients in faster and out of the ER faster because we had more help. Those cubicles that were shown, yeah, they have significant security risks for the nurses and for our patients. We have had incidences where another patient was attacked behind those cubicles and we could not see it on camera because the cubicles were, were blocking the view of the security camera. Yes, management came and fixed it afterwards, but it seems like a lot of the issues were happening seems to happen after an event where somebody is hurt or at risk. Some of the nurses are refusing to go outside when I'm charged to work outside because they feel like it's dangerous. Our patients have no privacy in those cubicles. We asked management to meet with us. They met with us. We came up with a plan to work together where the techs and all of the people that do patient care was actually gonna sit down and come up with a solution to some of these problems. And sadly to say, they told us we were gonna meet again and discuss this to take our next steps. And I'm very saddened to say that we had one of our nurses call us today said, she was pulled into a meeting only there for 30 minutes and was kicked out of the meeting and felt like her time there was not spent at all. And she felt like a lot of the things that we were concerned about is still moving forward. We love to work together with the physicians and administration and everybody at San Leandro Hospital to make this a better experience, not just for the patients, but for us. We have a space that's designated for triage. That space is being turned into offices. That is not appropriate. And we just wanna know um, that moving forward, that this process is going to include nurses, nurses, at, at the, not just at the minimum, because this does affect us and how we provide our care. Those cubicles are unsafe. And we've been very vocal about that from the time they went up. Thank you for your comments, Ms. Kamara. Madam Clerk, are there any others? I didn't see a third. Uh, I think there's one more. Do you see it? I Okay, if, if I could have my three minutes, um, uh, unfortunately, I guess uh, Miss Mandel is not able to comment. Um, she is an ER nurse there at, at San Leandro. I am not. Uh, what, but what I will speak to, I find it very interesting at the beginning of this meeting when I joined, um, we were talking about uh, the attrition of medical staff overall. And we were also uh, talking about the attrition of nurses and uh, burnout. Um, you know, a year and a half ago, we had a five-day strike. And we uh, have, a, as a result, a, a new board of trustees. We have new executive leadership. And we did that because we were very unhappy in the past. And the major reason we were so unhappy is because we as nurses were not being listened to. We were not being respected. Our input was not being considered. And so on the macro level, we had this, this huge organization and this huge movement, and we were quite successful. And um, I'm really pleased that that did happen. So we do have this change at the top. The problem is the day-to-day -day existence of our nurses has not changed. And we still find ourselves in the same um, unheard, uh, 
position that we were in the past. And we find it very, very disappointing, uh, professionally speaking, that uh, an agreement had been made with these ER nurses to, uh, to come together, to be heard, to work together collaboratively. And uh, today this ambush meeting occurred where Ms. Mandel was asked to join at the last minute, was only there for 30 minutes and then essentially asked to leave. So it, it just seems like business as usual, nothing has changed. And this is why we're taking the time uh, to speak out this evening on this particular issue with the hopes that uh, we, we could meet with uh, uh, the proper uh, uh, planning team and have these very uh, strong concerns addressed. Thank you for your comments, Lisa. Thank, Thank you, you very So, uh, Dr. Tali, with that, we'll close out your report. Um, let, let's next go to Dr. Joshi. Good evening, Dr. Joshi. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I will give the report on behalf of Alameda Hospital. So you can see my report and I'll add some things. So first I uh, wanna go through the category of quality and patient safety. We have been working with Dr. Tornabene and the patient experience group in terms of creating a cohort work group of physicians that will work together uh, to improve patient communication. I'm really excited about this endeavor because it is feeling like it's going to be different than your standard Zoom lecture that is a one and done, but rather by a creation of a cohort that will work together and have frequent touch points. The goal is to be able to essentially identify physicians, not in the negative, meaning those who communicate poorly, but rather those who seek to improve their communication. So I think through that type of a platform, we can really create a standard of excellence as opposed to striving for mediocrity. So I'm really excited to be working with Dr. Toner Benny and the patient experience group on that. On operations, we are closely monitoring our throughput in the emergency department and in the hospital. We have also been in the same situation as AHS that March 1st, um, the ambulance offloading has been um, going on. We've been monitoring it. And so far, it seems like the situation has improved. We are having good communication with Drew Lane, our ED nurse manager, and with Alameda Fire and with Fox. So it's been a, a good situation and I'm hopeful that it will continue to improve, meaning that we do everything that we can to return ambulances to the streets where they need to be to provide patient care. Other areas and operations to identify is that we have been working with radiology and a Troy Ashford's team to create a fast MRI protocol this will benefit our stroke program by those patients who teleneurology identifies could, uh, could benefit from a fast MRI from the emergency department. We have a process where we can actually bump the MRI schedule, get these MRIs done and back into the emergency department. That required some coordination and it took a lot of people to be involved to get that done. We also um, have updates with the transfer council. We actually met yesterday with Huron and the transfer council team and leaders across the system, including many of our nursing leaders and Ryan DeGibbs team. And we had a design session, a five hour long session that is great. We looked at a lot of aspects of our transfer center. Uh, we have a lot of work to do. Some areas that we identified that will take more work includes our ability to transfer surgical subspecialty patients 
for example, those who need neurosurgery or urology from the community hospitals into Highland Hospital. We looked at the protocol that was developed a few months ago by Dr. Perez and a few other leaders, including Teresa Cooper, which is for emergency department patients who need to be moved urgently, meaning not a 911 transfer such as trauma or STEMI, but something that is just as serious but doesn't fall in those typical definitions. That could include a neurosurgical emergency, a um, ovarian torsion, a significant GI hemorrhage type of a patient. So that protocol had been developed and we are able to further scrutinize that. Some areas of opportunity will be to create additional pathways for inpatient teams to similarly have a pathway to transfer patients who develop emergencies who are admitted. They have um, more challenges than the emergency departments have when it comes to emergency department to emergency department transfers, which makes this situation all the more important to analyze and develop solutions for. Another thing we're working on at Alameda Hospital is to create a new code system, a code three bleed. Um, there are many codes currently, code three, code stroke, code STEMI that we have in our hospital, but code three bleed is a new one that we're working on. The reason for this stemmed from a few months prior when we had our national blood bank shortages and it was identified that even in times where there is not a nationwide blood bank shortage, Alameda Hospital doesn't have the same amount of blood resources as let's say Highland Hospital has. So if there's a situation of exsanguination such as from a GI bleed, that patient's better served um, outside of Alameda Hospital transferred to Highland Hospital. So that code three bleed is a process that we're working on with oh. Dr. Valerie Ng's team with pathology that would bring blood to the emergency department. Also involves an interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary group. Some strengths I want to identify. First, last week, our stroke program was reaccredited. It was a day and a half of virtual um, um, survey. And I have to say, I want to highlight Rebecca Hidalgo Solomon, who is our stroke coordinator, who is absolutely excellent. She did a fantastic job representing us. She was graceful, professional at all times. Our surveyor was also really nice and professional to work with, but had tough questions and Rebecca really performed uh, under scrutiny. And I also wanna highlight Nilda Perez's team for helping us um, on the side of regulatory. I also wanna identify that our AIM group renewed their contract with us. And we now have a medical director, Dr. Isalani, who we are really glad to be able to work with. This medical director position is a new position. We did not have this before. So this will lead to better collaboration and better patient care. Yeah. Lastly, I wanna identify Mary Petra with respiratory. Um, she was instrumental in us obtaining new glide scopes, which have come for both the emergency department and the ICU. We have undergone training and in-servicing for the nurses. We're doing this for the physicians right now. These new glide scopes are absolutely state-of-the-art. And Mary Pat has taken the lead of also being able to take advantage of additional um, things that these do that we didn't even realize, such as asking for fiber optic equipment so that we could do more advanced airways such as awake intubation. So, Really want to thank Mary Pat for the hard work that she has put into this. Opportunities, medication reconciliation, Alameda Hospital, we have a ways to go in improving our medication reconciliation. It does start in the emergency department. Veronica Shelton and Drew Lane have already started the work on educating the nurses to be able to get this done. And we know that this is a priority. 
Sterile processing is another area of opportunity. Um, a few weeks ago, we realized that there were some issues at Alameda Hospital, and now sterile processing has moved entirely to Highland Hospital. So far, the system seems to be working well, um, and our surgery leaders are completely on top of the situation. A permanent solution will have to be found, and I'm looking forward to what that will be. It will take time, but for now, in the interim, we are doing well. Uh, materials management, uh, many, a couple weeks ago, Dean Scholl presented um, on materials management, and I'm looking forward to working with him and his team on getting a deeper handle on how equipment is ordered, maintained, monitored, in service, et cetera. So I think that's another area of opportunity. Uh, we're working on creating our professional standards committee. This was added to our bylaws in the most recent revision. We're working with Irina Williams to see if there's any opportunity to have a committee that actually goes between both med staffs for this. Um, Debbie Stebbins with Alameda Hospital Board just sent out an email today. Another area of opportunity is that um, there's opportunity to write letters to the city of Alameda to support some legislation that has been proposed. Um, so hoping that we can get uh, support for letters um, on that issue. Some, some concerns, so e-consults, Dr. Williams has been working hard on that. Uh, we'd like to see further expansion, GI in particular, and then just working with Dean Schold and um, materials management for maintenance and ordering of clinical equipment. And that's the conclusion of my report. Thank you. Thanks for your report, Dr. Joshi. Trustees, any questions of Dr. Joshi at Alameda Hospital? Excellent. Clark, comment? No, I said excellent. Oh, yes, thank you. Yeah, thank you for the report. So let's let's close it out with Dr. Williams, the chief of the medical staff for AHS Corps. Dr. Williams, good evening. Good evening. Um, let me start with my report. Um, so I will probably start with key concerns. Um, a few concerns that I highlighted on my report are the following. Um, operating room utilization. Uh, we're still working on um, improving how we use our ORs across the health system and the caseload is still below pre-COVID numbers. There are system-wide efforts to develop um, a system-wide block schedule. And my understanding is that we're in the final stages of implementing it. Um, operating room staffing uh, remains um, a concern, um, especially in certain locations, for example, San Leandro Hospital. Um, and the goal, uh, one of the goals is to redistribute uh, cases across the health system and utilize Alameda OR and San Leandro Hospital OR better. So we're looking forward to um, this effort um, evolving further and implementing the plan that uh, is called stage four. Um, so more to come on this. Um, Biomed equipment uh, monitoring is another concern that we uh, have. Uh, recently, there's been a lot of efforts as mentioned by Dr. Joshi around sort of um, streamlining how we approach our, our equipment in a more systematic way. Um, there is a desire on the end users, so the providers to be able to um, uh, have more input and participate more in the in the process. Um, 
Alameda Health System Governance Structure, it's sort of outstanding item on our key concern list. We just appreciate the communication and await further updates. Uh, periodically questions around it come up, so that's why I still have it here. Um, another concern that I didn't list, but I want to mention it verbally, is around um, specialty access and um, um, referral process from uh, emergency department and inpatient uh, services to the specialty. Uh, Dr. Joshi has mentioned that it still remains a concern in Alameda Hospital as well as San Leandro and um, parts of Highland. So uh, we are uh, working on identifying additional specialties that we can include in the pilot, as well as refining and fine tuning the logistics around the specialties that are current, currently involved in the pilot. So um, there are any suggestions in terms of specialties that will be helpful to include as a next phase, I'm open to hearing it. Um, uh, MEC, moving forward to the next items on my report. So MEC has, uh, has received the reports from the Department of Surgery and San Leandro Leadership Committee. Um, we have some updates regarding department chair search. Um, as I have informed the board before, the anesthesiology chair search has been closed. Our new chair will be starting on July the 1st. Um, emergency medicine search uh, chair search committee, department chair search committee was built and um, a medical group will be taking it from there in terms of um, developing the strategy um, for uh, recruitment and advertisement of that position. Um, I don't have updates regarding Department of Medicine and Department of Orthopedic Surgery. Search, it is ongoing. Uh, we have encountered challenges with recruitment and um, tr we're trying to fine-tune how we approach it so that we can find the right applicants and the right candidates for these roles. Um, that concludes my report. I'm open to take any questions. Thank you for your report, Dr. Williams. Trustees, any questions of Dr. Williams? Right. To all three doctors, I appreciate your report being efficient tonight, uh, uh, helping to navigate your board chair who's not managing time well, but we're having conversation and that's what's important. So with that, we'll close item C, the medical staff reports. Next is item B, the East Bay Medical Group update. Thank you, doctors. Uh, uh, as the trustees can recall, um, the EPMG board reports to the AHS board of trustees. That, that the effort to make this a standing agenda item is to put this, uh, to improve our line of sight for our, uh, our governance and responsibility. So we have, we have a short regular monthly agenda item for uh, both the president uh, of EBMG, Dr. Achilles Warren, and the board chair, Dr. Bernice Perez. So uh, good evening, doctors, and uh, we have 10 minutes on the clock. Great, thank you. Uh, good evening, trustees and audience members. I'm gonna share my screen. Can folks see it? Yep, good. Okay. Still loading on my end. As it's loading, oh, there you go. Never mind. I'll do it at the next second. Go for it. Okay. Um, so we'll run through a couple different updates um, today. Um, I think the, the overall theme is that there's a lot of recruiting happening. There's a lot of energy. I think the, the comp plan, as we had, um, discussed uh, a couple of months ago, has energized the group. And we're starting to think um, a little bit further down the road on how do we start to build on the momentum from the past? 
Um, how do we start to continue to um, expand our support of physicians? Um, I think you've heard several examples this evening already that, that are happening system-wide, whether it's Doctor's Day, um, the many, many things that, are doing, that we're doing to uh, support the workflows in various service areas. Um, and as the medical group, I think trying to ensure that this is a place where people want to continue to work, thrive, and build their professional careers is what we're after. Um, so we'll give a few updates on what we're up to. Just want to kind of give a brief update on the comp plan. We're really at the very final stages of legal review right now, putting the, the final kind of icing on the cake. We should be able to implement um, in April uh, in, the, in the next two weeks. Um, and then our next um, goals are really to focus on physician leadership, which is what I want to talk about a little bit today. Um, as we know, um, not only was it important to kind of get staff physicians um, through Eastern Medical Group, their compensation structure sort of aligned with the market, but also sort of aligned with each other in terms of equity. Um, but now we're sort of focusing on um, physician leadership. We know that that's critical to um, how we conduct business in our organization, having physician leaders um, be supported, but also have the skills and the competencies required to be successful. Um, is, is critical. And we have a number of physician leaders that East Bay Medical Group employs, um, you know, uh, not unexpectedly, um, you know, these folks have never had any formal training, um, for the most part, have never had um, any performance reviews, have never had any, um, you know, offers of regular coaching, um, and um, are still doing phenomenal jobs, um, but we want to capture that and also want to capture the gaps. Um, so our goals are really to start to embark on performance management for our physician leaders. And this is something that I'm partnering with Dr. Tornabene on so that we can really roll this out system-wide. So it's not just EVMG employed physicians that will be impacted by this, but how do we extend this to all physician leadership throughout the organization? And sort of because we tend to employ the vast majority of physician leaders, we can kind of lead the way on setting um, the standards. We really want to understand what it takes for physician leaders to be successful, resource them appropriately and standardize both their compensation and their administrative time according to what are their performance expectations are. Um, and I'm, I'm excited about this because this is starting to professionalize our group, right? It's starting to take it to the next level in terms of um, being a leader is not just a volunteer job. It's, it's actually a job that requires some actual skills, competencies, and things that can be built over time. Um, and I hope this becomes a feeding ground for physician leaders that we can, you know, eventually kind of grow and ship off to the world to other institutions as well. I mean, that would be a great way to build our brand. Um, so we have a very rough timeline for this work um, in the spring. So now we are establishing what our performance competencies are for physician leaders. It's very preliminary. We're getting, um, we're being very transparent about the whole process, actually engaging our leaders in helping um, co-create these competencies. We're drafting a governance structure of who's actually administering performance reviews and supporting and coaching leaders in our organization. And then we're gonna do some self-assessments to start, which is a gentle way to set expectations, but also start to get a sense of where our own leaders feel their gaps are and where their strengths are. Um, and we're gonna do the compensation work in parallel. So right now, we're starting to look at market benchmarks for where physician leader compensation should be. We will be um, conferring with AHS very, very regularly to do that, um, to make sure that we're in line with where um, uh, the system's expectations are for physician leader compensation. And then later this year, um, we'll be actually conducting 360 reviews for our physician leaders and hopefully having that roll into real um, coaching, training, and skill development um, programming that we can roll out. 
These are the four areas of competencies that we've identified for um, physician leaders. This means um, chairs, division chiefs, and we'll sort of see how far down the line we, we go. But the four areas are enabling excellent care, creating trust, leading service strategy and managing resources, and facilitating transparent communication. And below each competency, we've sort of listed example actions of what, um, what, what types of um, behaviors suggest um, that this person is achieving the competency. And these again were co-created with our with our physician leaders. So I'll continue to update the group um, on the, the board of trustees on that um, item as we, we um, move it along. I don't have any new updates on our union. Um, we know that our organizers are working hard to establish a leadership structure to determine priorities for the group for the CBA. Um, and uh, that we on the EBMG leadership side are gonna be um, working alongside AHS with IEDA for labor relations management. I think my slides are stuck. Okay. Berenice, I think I'm passing it to you. Thank you. So I'm so sorry, my camera is not working. Um, so I apologize for that. Um, so doc, thank you, Dr. Fizwan. Um, so I'm going to give an update on the EBMG Board of Directors election. We have two open seats for interested person directors. So these are EBMG staff positions. Um, one of the seats is for a one-year term and the other seat is for a two-year term. We have three excellent nominees um, that have been selected and approved by the board to go on to election. Um, and we anticipate that the election uh, will happen sometime in mid-May. Um, once we have an outcome, we will submit, submit the elected candidates uh, to the trustees for approval, and we anticipate that to happen at the June meeting. Um, next slide, Chitra. Dr. Coswarn. Dr. Perez, can you tell us? Oh, I have one more. Sorry. Dr. Perez, can you, this is, this is tap. Yes. Can you tell us about the terms? Why is there a one for a one-year term and one for a two-year term? So my understanding is because of when um, the uh, directors left, um, and you know, I have to ask sort of legal exactly why, but this sort of precedes me, but I, I think it's so, so to prevent people, us from having too many empty seats, but I have to double check with legal. Dr. Coswarren, do you remember about the study exactly the place? Yeah, um, the, all the all the directorships had three-year terms um, essentially, and uh, one person left with one year to complete, and two one person left with two years to complete. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So three-year terms that that mimics the AHS board of trustees. Is there, a, is there a term, a, a number of term limits? That's a good question. I'll have to check with the bylaws. I don't know. Yeah, the, the, on the AHS board, each term is three years. You can have up to two more, so a maximum of nine years for AHS trustees. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah, we'll, we'll check on that. Thank you. Sorry for interrupting. Yeah, no, that's totally fine. 
Um, and then I also want to give an update on the evaluation of the president, so Dr. Close Warren. So she has completed her first year anniversary as the EBMD president. Um, and she completed that anniversary last month. Um, and then during this time, she has negotiated a physician compensation plan. She negotiated changes to the professional service agreement, and she implemented inclusive family benefits in addition to other things. Um, in terms of the evaluation, we did a brief uh, uh, evaluation, six months, sorry, this is six year, but six month evaluation, uh, which was completed six months ago. Um, and this uh, survey was sent to the board of directors, the EBMG members and EBMG staff. We presented the results of that evaluation during our open session and she received overwhelmingly good feedback. Um, but the board and the EBMG members also felt empowered to provide some constructive criticism that Dr. Close Warren welcomed with open arms. Um, and now that we have passed the one year mark, we will be sending out a more formal yearly evaluation that will look um, a lot like the evaluation that was created for Mr. Jackson, but modified for the needs of EBMG. So thank you, Trustee Bouquet, Dr. Bouquet, for providing that resource to EBMG. Um, just a plug that please be on the lookout in your inboxes for this evaluation. Um, we want to make this um, as inclusive as possible. And um, Dr. Close Warren really welcomes your feedback. And that, I believe, ends our report. Thank you, Dr. Perez. I'll open it up for trustee questions of either Dr. Achilles Warren or Perez from EBMG. I had a question. How long are the officer terms? Are they one year or two? Officer, uh, like the board, the board president. Trustees in, in the room, if we, uh, apparently our mic is having some mic issues, so oh. we'll just speak up. Yeah, what, what are the officer term limits? I know that the members of the board have a three-year term. What's the uh, officer term, elected officer? I would have to look at our bylaws. I can get back to you on that. And Dr. Akhilashwan, I'm so sorry. This is such a basic question. No, it's okay. Are you, um, you're the executive director or the president of the board? She's the president of EBMG reporting to the EBMG board. Okay, yeah. got it. I, CEO I, president, CEO yes. of EBMG. So, so if it helps and it may, you know, getting economies of scale, the AHS trustees can have a three-year term. The executive officers of the AHS Board of Trustees are on one-year terms. They're elected annually. And as a side note, if we're doing parallels, the CEO is evaluated twice per year, twice per year. Uh, one in a probably larger scale evaluation, the other a smaller scale, if that helps. Um, trustees, any other questions? So we, we appreciate that. We hope this agenda item works for you as you as you help uh, uh, help us understand EBMG and its and its important and critical role in this organization. So the trustees, just to let you know, there's an actually a, an item in the consent agenda called receiving the minutes of the East Bay Medical Group meetings. So this is also going to be a new standing consent agenda item. So we have great visibility and as a, as a, as a commentary, those those minutes are very nicely written out and. and so um, uh, thank you to Dr. Satila Swaran and Dr. Perez, and we'll continue to see you guys monthly. Thank you very much. Thank you. With that, we will close out item D, and I hope to gain a little bit of time here on committee reports. So um, uh, first, item E1 is the Audit and Compliance Committee. 
uh, by Chair Mark Friedman. This is from March 16, 2022. Good evening, Trustee Friedman. Good evening. It was a, uh, a very smooth meeting and there's really nothing of substance to report. Uh, all, all systems go and uh, just made up some time. Yes, sir. <laughs> Appreciate it. We'll, and we will take it. I'm going to try to attempt to match you. Item E2 is the QPSC uh, committee report. This is from March 23rd, 2022. In short, we did the regular and standard work of, of the QPSC, which is improving credentialing policies and procedures, hearing quality reports, and directly engaging with our med staff leaders. We did an article called U.S. Hospital Performance Methodologies, a scoping review to identify opportunities for crossing the quality chasm. That, that's a mouthful. Why was that article chosen? Because that, we're, we're right in the middle. Actually, no, we're not in the middle. We're coming towards the end of our strategic plan. And, and we, the, the hope of this article was to frame how we pick the right metrics for, for our strategic plan. Dr. Tornavene and the quality team are actually having our deep in this discussion. And just to let everyone know, the QPSC will be hearing their proposals next month. Next, in May. In May, in May. Sorry, I screwed that up before. <laughs> we'll be hearing about that in May. Um, uh, the marquee presentation was a very, uh, a very thoughtful uh, report on MRI access in our system. And MRI uh, has been, uh, if you will, a little thorn in the heel of this organization before about how we move people through the organization. And, and under Director of Imaging Services, Troy Ashford, they are making some leaps and bounds in improvement in access. And that's going to, I think, help the the, the, the pump move within the hospital. So that was the, the quality uh, committee report. Uh, let's go to item E3, the finance committee chair, uh, Chair Fox from right. April 6, 2022. I'll try to match your brevity. Um, <laughs> largely owing to collection percentages being well above budget. Uh, year to date, February, we have a net income across the system of $68 million compared to a budget of $18 million and a loss of $266 million at this point last year. Volume continues to remain generally below budget, but above last year. And our NNB net, net due to Alameda County, net negative balance was $17 million at the end of February. We're projected to be well below the fiscal year end target of $120 million in 2022, but to be well above the target in 2023 due to estimated uh, prior year settlements. We had a uh, educational uh, presentation by uh, Chief Administrative Officer Mario Harding about San Leandro and Alameda hospitals. Um, Mr. Harding compared various stats, stats and utilization levels of the two hospitals in the Highlands. Um, he feels that probably the biggest challenge operationally is to rebuild trust with community surgeons. And his future vision uh, is how to repurpose space in the two hospitals, improve surgery volumes, uh, provide needed facelifts, uh, and how to, to do renovations at San Leandro Hospital. We talked about an article entitled Principles, Principles of Finance, which, which in general uh, describes the purpose and, and use of the three major financial statements. And I, as chair, I'd urge members of the committee that they feel they're not understanding the three financial statements how they differ to, from each other to get in touch with uh, either uh, the committee chair or the CFO. Uh, we had a budget update from 
Uh, Kim Miranda, uh, she set down the budget, the goals and guiding principles of the Budget Oversight Committee. We talked about the need for uh, Finance Department and the Committee to tease out those items that are in our financials this year that will not be reoccurring so we could get to a run rate that we can use as the basis for next year's budget. Um, and the preliminary bottom line budget for next year is estimated at $800,000 of net income, and that includes the benefit of the best initiatives. Uh, there was some discussion of capital budgeting also, and there was some urging by a, a few of the uh, committee members that management not understate real capital needs of the organization going into the capital budget process. And all the contract renewal items on the agenda were approved. And that is my report, that, Mr. Chair. That, that's a great report, Mr. Chair. Um, uh, I, I remind the trustees and everybody, we've now entered into Q4 of this organization. Uh, Trustee Fox, apologies. I'm going to ask you just to give in your just a, a tale of the numbers. What 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 were the numbers which most uh, gave you a personal position or incitement? I, I don't want to say you were excited about it, but maybe you were. What 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 numbers jumped out at you at this most recent committee report? Well, continuing to have uh, revenue realization or collection percentage is well above budget when you're a when you're when you're, when you're sending out about three billion dollars a year of charges, uh, a million, a one percentage increase in your collection rate is worth thirty million dollars. Yes, yes, sir. So, you know the the impact of two to three percent is massive, and this massive. is coming from uh, both the uh, the conversion onto Epic, which gave us uh, the ability to to see into our accounts receivable and our billing uh, better and the tremendous efforts on the part of the finance department uh, under Kim uh, Randa's leadership to uh, really uh, increase that collection percentage and our, reduce our days in receivable. And, and those things are things that if we can sustain them are going to really help to put us on a profitable footing going forward. Yes, sir. I, I think for the finance geeks, uh, which I'm trying to be, it was a pretty impressive report to read how, how we're going with some of these data. Net patient service revenue, NPSR, some people, uh, uh, you know, the geeks speak of this. Uh, I think we posted an NPSR last month of 24%. Right. I don't recall seeing a uh, an NPSR in that range. I'm not sure ever. And there were some unusual non-recurring items there, but still we captured them. Yes, sir. And, you know, as I'm sure everybody knows, the revenue cycle in healthcare is Byzantine. Yes, sir. It's unlike anything that you would see in any other industry. And, and the amount of things that have, have to be paid attention to and the opportunity to get slipped up by things that most of us in this room have never heard of is large. So uh, we really have a team that's, that's hitting it out of the park right now. Yes, sir. Thank you for, for leading us there, Trustee Fox. Any questions of any of the committee chairs on any of those uh, three committees? I think one, um, yes, reiterating kind of reaffirming what uh, Trustee Fox, Chair Fox just said. One was that like recouping the behavioral health, a lot of the uh, uh, reimbursement for that. And the other one was kind of reminding because our um, chief of our medical staff are, are here is that do not be as we are thinking about capital budget. Sometimes people don't know what's possible or available. And they scarcely mindset. 
we have a scarcity mindset, so we tend to not ask and at least have it on paper so that then if not this year, it's there. So think about all the possible things that one might be um, thinking about this is, uh, um, in terms of your campaigns. All right, with that, let's thank you everyone for that. Let's close out item E. All right, item F is the consent agenda. Boy, it is a big consent agenda. Items F1 through F5, item F5 is almost $25 million. Um, uh, uh, so just leaving there. There's items F1 through F6, I'll ask this question. Uh, before entertaining a motion to approve the entirety of this consent agenda, do any trustees feel that any items need to be removed for discussion? Then I'm gonna ask Dr. Friedman, Trustee Friedman to do what he does. I move the consent agenda consisting of items F1 through F6. Second. Yes, do, do we have a second? Second. Who is that? Ooh, ah, got it. Uh, Madam, Madam, Madam Clark. Trustee Bailey. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Blue. She, she's there. She's there. Aye. Sorry. Trustee Chapman. <clears throat> she's she's uh, on the screen. Sorry, she's not on the screen. She's logged in. Trustee Chapman. Okay, I'll circle back around okay. here. Trustee Esteem. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Friedman. Aye. Trustee Jensen. Aye. Trustee Spindoria. Aye. And uh, Trustee Chapman. Aye. All right, the motion passes. Thank you. Wow, congratulations to our COO and our CMO. That was a lot of uh, contracting that you guys had to navigate through. So, team, we're, 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 we're basically at the last open session agenda items G1 and G2. And, and 30 minutes have been blocked out for them, but I don't think we need 30 minutes for each of them. But maybe we do, maybe we don't. Item G1 is actually the strategic plan update. Uh, we're we're going to hear from Mr. Jackson and our Huron consultants. Everyone recalls we initiated this engagement with Huron quite some time. I will tell you the Huron team has been working hard behind the scenes, attending ELT retreats, attending our board of trustees retreats. It's gone through a number of iterations, and 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 I would assert it 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 looks to be, in my impression, almost baked, if not if not baked. So we're going to hear. Um, from uh, Ms. Grimmer and Mr. McKittrick uh, on this. And Mr. Jackson, if you want to, if there's anything to open up for us, go for it. I Thank you. Um, I don't think so. I think it, to your point, it's, it's kind of baked. And um, we're now doing the fine tuning. And so I'd like to turn to Ms. Grimmer and Mr. McKittrick. Good evening, guys. Thank you, James. And I'm going to pull up our presentation materials and share our share my screen here. If you give me one moment to get into presentation mode with the shared screen. Right. Thank you very much uh, for your for your time this evening. Um, Martin, Martin, give me one second. Remember, trustees. Ultimately, we're going to have to approve this plan. So part of what we're doing here is framing ourselves for when this comes back around in, I think, May. Um, for an actual action item. We'll, we'll make it an action discussion, but this is going to be that springboard for that. Apologies, Martin. Go for it, sir. Thank you, Dr. Chairman. Uh, so jumping right in, um, 
you know, we've, we've made some revisions based on what we heard at the ELT retreat, um, as well as what we heard um, in our time with you all, um, I think almost three weeks ago now. Um, so wanted to, as we go through, highlight some of the things that have changed. Um, we revised the pillars, uh, and that's based on discussions in, in both retreats. Um, and one thing we did note, there are differing viewpoints within ELT and, and the board. Um, we did give consideration to a, a health equity, diversity, and inclusion specific pillar of the strategic plan. Um, we received some, some pretty strong feedback from the HETI committee um, against doing so, and, and they asked us to, to please move that back out into a ring. Um, so as we think about the structure that we bring to you today, um, that's based on being responsive to, um, you know, I think was a near unanimous um, viewpoint of the HETI committee um, and a strongly uh, held opinion of that committee. Um, we also looked at some publicly available strategic plans from some sample safety net systems, um, compared their pillars, focus areas, and strategic priorities um, with the input that we had to arrive at, at these pillars. And I think there, there were a lot of common themes that we saw, so there was not a lot of, not a lot of revision based upon that. Um, the other thing we want to highlight as we get into, into the discussion today, um, all 20 of the strategic actions that we discussed at the retreat are included in the current draft. Um, there are a couple that have moved pillars um, as we've expanded out to four pillars. Um, there's some revision to those actions based on discussion, and that revision is ongoing. Um, we've had um, several great and very productive sessions um, with the ELT and some of the operational leaders of the organization working through and clarifying and, and really highlighting the things that, that they want to bring to you and, and to your attention for approval. Um, we also added, we're also adding an accountability and a five-year roadmap for each action. Um, those are being reviewed and edited as part of those sessions as well. Um, so when you see the final plan, what you will actually see is what is the action, who's responsible, um, how does it roll up to the board, um, and then you'll see what are we going to do each year, and then how are we going to measure our success in each of the five years of the five-year plan. Um, those we'll, we'll talk toward the end of this presentation around the timeline um, of that. So our goals for the meeting today, um, gain your feedback on the revised pillars, um, and specifically, we want to say, are they clear and executable? Um, is there agreement on the structure that we've presented within the Board of Trustees? Um, essentially, what we're asking is, is, does this structure make sense? And is this something we, uh, you, know, you will support as we bring um, more and more detail to you over the coming weeks? Um, and again, that is the, the underlying detail down to the what are we going to do each year um, level. So as we think about the, the pillars we, we have revised here and health equity, diversity and inclusion remains uh, in the outer ring um, with accountability, trust and data just inside that. Four pillars, sustainability, quality care, community connection and staff and physician experience um, all with patients at the center. So uh, pausing there, kind of first pass on this, um, any comments or feedback? I, I appreciate um, the community connection inside of the circle there. I think that's effective and it really it really um, presents it to me and makes it makes it apparent, at least to me, that these are all areas, all these core areas are really going to support 
support um, quality, high quality outcomes for patient care. Thank you, Trustee Jensen. Other trustees? Yeah, I'm really glad to see the uh, equity pillar be, be a ring around, like having a separate pillar would have been kind of... Like it might have isolated it. Hmm? It might have isolated it. It would have isolated it, and I think then people think that that is the, that's the job of the health equity folks to be doing that, and by making that it's a true line and core and central to every aspect of operations and functioning. So I, I really like uh, the ring. So what sort of jumped out at me is that you know I, I care about as we all do. I care about the governance of this and. Uh, and going around the pillars, let's start with quality care. Uh, how would we manage that? That that would map nicely to the quality committee of the board. So I, I think that that's pretty cool. Sustainability <laughs> for us, I believe, is finance and operations, and, and and we sort of have a place where that is in our finance committees. So uh, begging your in, in, in indulgence, Mr. Finance Chair, maybe your committee becomes the sustainability committee. Uh, the staff and position experience would map to our HR committee. Uh, we have a, we have a chair. So I'll, I guess I'll ask this question of our CEO, Mr. CEO. We don't really have a committee that maps to community connection. What what would we do about that? Well, please. Uh, sorry. No, 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 please. Uh, you know, Hedy. Um, a, I feel like again we think of our health equity diversity. There are operational needs in that committee, and though it's not a board committee, but it's a hands-on roll-up your sleeves working yeah. committee. And a very core part of that is the external linkages. So that when we talk about community linkages, we are talking about the folks where we are interfacing with partners. Outside of AHS, right? Yeah. Is that what uh, uh, so I, I think Martin will talk to the vision about what this will be, but I'm presuming this is more external facing than internal facing. Yeah. So there is a group that's kind of was supposed and is is tasked with doing that. So one of the things, I mean, I I, I feel like a I want to even understand um, if you know. There's some way in which Hedy can be some 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 of that work can overlap with what this is doing. So we don't create redundancy and create yet another committee. And, so and, and, and Trustee Banerjee, the one of the things that we heard something very similar from the Hedy committee. And as we get as we go a little further in the plan, we've actually gone through and tagged um, specific things that are Hedy related across all of the pillars. Which I think I think is what you're what you're you're suggesting um, with the idea there then that that these are things that the heady committee really needs to be involved in um, and and as we look at it it crosses into all four pillars um, fairly dramatically. So I, so I guess Trustee Banerjee I guess my so those are great comments I guess my question is how do how are we ensured as a board that this is being governed up to us we don't it, this doesn't sort of fit within our current structure. And maybe we can get to rebuild our structure. Do we have a community uh, uh, committee? So which all these all these pillars would then roll up to us. Mr. Jackson, do you have an opinion, sir? I do. Um, I certainly appreciate the discussion. And I, I really think the comments around Hedy are, are crucial. Something I'd like to offer is that I believe that 
Um, when I was engaged a little over a year ago, one of the key elements of my tasking from the trustees was to rebuild the bridges that had been damaged and to establish new bridges with our community. Um, I believe that that work is underway. Um, I honestly, I think that that could be something the CEO can I'd like to see the CEO charged with providing updates to the trustees in regards to the community connection. I don't think that that would supersede what um, trustee managing has suggested, but I do think that if that had to be, if it had to live somewhere, if it had to be owned by someone, I would offer that that could be the CEO's. Yeah, I, I, the only thing that I feel is that it's more than providing updates, you know, it's a one person job. Um, I was at the, on, on Monday, which was, you know, National Maternal Health Day, our Alameda County Public Health, Alameda Health System, the foundation had a screening of this uh, film on uh, Beloved Black Birding. And one of the things that they had about, like, Beloved Birth Justice was you can see how seamlessly the county, the system, uh, other community partners are working together. So you need some place which is operationalizing that, you know, working on like how do we make sure that the population health that we are doing so much of what happens here is outside. Uh, how do we have? So uh, while I, as the champion and the chief ambassador for that, uh, you should not rest on your shoulders alone. There's a, there's an organizing and operational aspect of it. And I wonder how EPMG reports to the board sometimes that a, if that could be like, heady um, could be something that provides like every uh, uh, written report or something of the work that they are doing each of their, I don't know, I'm not part of that yet. Uh, but. Uh, Dr. Tonabene, you might be on the chairs of the Heavy Committee, might provide, you know, there's a need that we want, I think, so. And each of those groups are, I think, subgroups are pretty active, so how does that come up to the board? We'll have to operationalize that. Trustee Banner, do you have a vision for how that particular pillar would roll up to us? I mean, do we, do we, would you generate a committee for it? Do we let the CEO be our interface for it? And I'll float that out to the, all the trustees because, well, what do you think about these four pillars? Does this make sense? Does it fit within the structure of what we're trying to do? Yeah. So uh, I, I think that whether you're talking about quality of care or you're talking about sustainability, there's linkages, internal, external work that that is that feeds into that. So I, I do think I'll defer to the folks. Um, in heading to think about if we need to create a separate committee or that is something that can be like an overlapping element. Um, I'm not part of that yet, so um, we will, um, I know that they've been moving ahead with the plans, but uh, yeah, I'll get How I see this as presented is as heading as not as a pillar, Hedy is the, if you will, the, the, the ring that encompasses everything. So Hedy has to be infused into sustainability, infused into quality care, infused into staff and physician experience, infused into community connection. And then you're right, how do we how do we mechanize and operationalize this so it's not 
ad hoc. <laughs> so we only hear about it once a year. Um, they have a workforce pillar too, right? So that has to like staff and physician experience. The so, bottom left hand corner. Exactly. So I yeah. think we have to find ways to get the community connection into all of the other aspects of, of our existing. So, so if the community was going to be infused on them, does that belong in an outer ring or would it be a pillar? If we're infusing community in at all. I'm going to go with Trustee Jensen. Her hand was up. Then I saw Trustee Friedman. And then we're going to do Trustee Fox. Trustee Jensen. Well, there are different types of models for a, a committee. I, well, first of all, I agree that I, I like the way that you envision this, um, Dr. Chair, and I like the way that these pillars would, would be under the authority of or the, the, the direction the of, board. exactly. Yeah. And so um, with regard to community um, connection, I just feel like there are some, there are some examples, like, but there, there's nothing really specific that, that we can use that I'm aware of. The, the Board of Supervisors, for example, has a procurement and contracting committee, and that does some of these things. They work with partners to, to establish um, services and, and do outreach for things that the county residents need. There's um, community benefit committees, you know, for especially for those nonprofit hospitals that have money that they have to give away. Those committees tend to, to either provide grants or look for ways to improve community health by directing funding or, or looking for service opportunities in the community. So those discussions would roll up through that pillar. Yeah. Right, those are committees that come up to the exec, to the full board. Yeah. And so I, I think that, that this would be, I would really think that there should be a committee, that it would be something um, unique and hybrid for our organization. And it would include the positions, it would include perhaps some of the represented groups, it would include Alameda Healthcare District and um, our non-employee position groups. It would include, um, you know, perhaps we would have a committee that actually included someone, um, some of the the providers at the county level that are. EMS is a good example. If we had a committee that include that was more inclusive, then we had EMS, then we wouldn't have to identify these issues and, and go get opinions and then come back and, and bring it to the board for a decision. So that would be ideal from my perspective if, if those partnerships could be done. And I would also point out, um, and Mark might be able to, Mark Friedman might be able to comment on this. The um, county's all-in committee has also kind of has some, some things that we could use, I think, some takeaways that um, have been help the county to identify needs in the community and partnerships. Thank you, Trustee Jensen. That's a good, great food for thought. We'll do Trustee Friedman, Trustee Fox, then Mr. Bradsky. Uh, thank you for your comments, Trustee Jensen. I think those were along the lines of what I was going to say. I, I was there at the birth of all in Alameda County uh, with Supervisor Chan, and uh, there are things to learn there, certainly. At times, that group has been extremely representative of many uh, avenues within the community, and other times the energy kind of lag, like these sorts of committees tend to do. Um, I think what 
distinguished it is it had resources from the beginning. So if we're going to do this, we can't under-resource it, but then again, we can't afford to over-resource it. So um, these kinds of processes that I've been involved with, you have to manage them very carefully um, because it can create more work than we're capable of taking on. But if we don't respect it and um, you know set something in motion, then we're missing a great opportunity. I think everybody that touches AHS has many community connections. They're members of churches, community groups, labor unions, political groups, and essentially all of us are ambassadors for AHS, um, but it's not a conscious process. So if we could make it more conscious, that role of ambassador and that role of collaboration with management labor, community, political connections. I think it could be a real asset, but one that we have to design pretty carefully. Um, the other comment I was gonna make is on these slides in the lower left corner, it says confidential draft for discussion purposes only. I think that must be left over from something else because this is a public meeting, this is a public document. <laughs> And this is a public process, so there's there's nothing confidential about it. Thank you, Trustee Freeman. Trustee Fox, then Mr. Brasky. Okay. Well, um, my thought on this is that um, let's not put the cart before the horse here. We're governance. It's up to management, administration, to come up with an approach to how they're going to um, interface the organization with the community. So before we go and change our whole board committee structure, my suggestion would be that why don't we listen to periodic reports from management uh, either once a month or every other month on how they intend to and are handling community engagement. And then as we get more familiar with, our, with what's going on, you know, if we think it's wise to change our structure, we can entertain that idea. But for now, you know, I think we need to give the um, give the ball to uh, our very capable administration. Let them run with it for a while and come back and tell us where they where they think this should go. Yeah. And, and I note that our CEO has a standing and fixed item agenda item on our whole board. So this is one venue to discuss these community things as he does. Yeah. Mr. Pratt, uh, sorry, <laughs> Trustee Van, uh, Mr. Pratsky, then Trustee Banerjee. Yeah, I, I was just thinking that you know under the community pillar, there will be very specific actions that have to be actualized. And internally, we have to give those actions, we have to give those actions to somebody or something, whether it's Hetty, whether it's James, whether it's another committee, to actualize them, right? Yes. And it seems to me that the full board could be the recipients of the governance, because the full board represents our community. And maybe we have a a, an agenda item at the full board session every month or every two months that just says community pillar. Yeah. And whatever entity is handling it internally can give that report, whether that's James or somebody else. But frankly, our board represents the entire Alameda County. Yes, sir. That's a great I, I totally agree. And I think for many of us, because Eddie was doing a lot of internal focus work for a year, so we haven't seen the newer charter if you have, have, but they have 
folks from the public health department. They have folks from HEXA on the committee. They have those linkages. And so I think, and a lot of the operational people, the management leaders here that will be thinking about like where through whether it's this line of service or that line of service or this where some of these linkages will happen. So I think we probably need to hear and then exactly like you said, how is it being actualized and operationalized? We can, we can get updates. And there is a board rep on the on the heavy committee too. So there'll be that liaison in the workings of it, hopefully, and then also in the um, updates. Thank you, Trustee Banerjee. Uh, let, let me hear from trustees Blue, Splendorio, and Chapman on this concept of, and, and we're just trying to answer the question, do these, does this pillar proposal fit? Trustee Blue, then Splendorio, then, uh, then Chapman? Yeah, I do think they, they fit. Um, you know, it's just making sure that, you know, how do we hold ourselves accountable and just being really clear on the measurements of success so that we can adjust our strategic plan as needed. Yes, ma'am, I, I completely agree with that. It has to roll up. The second it becomes ad hoc, we forget it. Yep. And so we, we have to, as Trustee Fox said, we have, to, we have to be smart about creating the mechanisms for which we're measuring it so we can manage it. Trustee Splendorio, then Trustee Chapman. It's fine. I, I, you know, I've said this before, I don't process information based upon charts like this. It just doesn't, so, I mean, I, with that reservation, which I'm not trying to be negative, it's just, you know, you're, it's just how I process information. And uh, and so, but it's it captures a lot of important things. And I, but like I said last time was our community is the most important thing. We have to, we are representing, we are serving the community. And to me, that's, I know that maybe that's represented by patients, but that, that patients are, are broader in a broader sense. Thank you, Trustee Spondorio. Trustee Chapman. Um, it, it, it does, it looks fine. I think all the pillars are included. Um, I would also add that um, we are all Alameda County. So I think we're what, 15 or 16 cities or something like that. I don't know how many it is. But um, with us being all of Alameda County, HICSA does have programs that involve some of this. So as we start to roll it out, we might wanna look at partnering with um, some of our county partners on some of these things as well. So we'll see, but it, it does look good. Okay. So uh, just on the question of, of, of these four pillars, I don't feel like any, uh, actually I'll say it in the positive. I feel like it has the support of this, uh, of our trustees. Any, any, any opposition to that statement? Wow, cool. I have a, sorry, I have one for a general counsel. Uh, counsel, what, what are the, what, what do our bylaws provide for either renaming a committee or creating committee? What if we wanted to rename the finance committee, the sustainability committee? Are we allowed to do that or does that require, does that require a bylaw revision? Do we have to go to the suits? Yeah, you know, so, so the bylaws specifically call out the committee, the okay. finance committee, the finance committee, the quality committees, okay. the quality, quality, Quality professional services. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, um, you know, technically we enjoy it. But okay. I, I need to go back so, if we wanted, if we wanted, and I agree with Trustee Fox, let's let's start and then let's deal with that down the road. Yeah. But if we wanted to have a committee called the Community Connection Committee, 
this would require, and we wanted to change finance to sustainability, this, in your opinion, would require a bylaw provision. So, so, so the former, I don't believe, if you're creating the committee, yeah. then you go back and, and okay. the check this, but the latter changing the names of the committee, again, it's a super technical kind of a, a look at it, if you would, but okay. I, I, I need to kind of go back and work on that. Okay, got it. Um, Sorry, Mr. McKittrick, I, I took you off your, your game, but I think you sort of got what you wanted, or one of the things you wanted, which was, I think the trustees are in support of this four-pillar mechanism, uh, four-pillar structure. Um, can you talk to us about this inner blue ring, accountability, trust, and data? Yeah, and we have on our, on our, on our next slide, um, we, talk, we talk about what, these, what the rings are, um, what they're intended to be, and what they're intended to stand for. Uh, so the outer ring, health equity, diversity, and inclusion, um, we've tagged those initiatives specifically with a, a green heady box. So every initiative and in the, the sort of the three slide description of it, or three page description of it, uh, will have that tag um, as you go through. Um, but as we think about accountability, this goes to leaders, physicians, and staff being accountable to each other and to the community for delivering care. Um, and I think we heard, heard a lot about that. Um, early on, earlier on in the meeting, especially in the articles discussion. Uh, trust, um, fostering an environment of trust within the organization and outwardly within the community and its constituents. Um, that's, yeah, I think we, we talk about that a lot. And I think we've, we've spoken about that uh, in, in some detail um, over the last several months. And then finally, data. AHS will develop and utilize trusted sources of data in support of the delivery of care and reporting of performance results. And, and those are sort of two distinct uses of data, but they're two things that we've heard a lot about in the organization um, going through. And, and we've had a lot of great engagement from uh, Mr. Amy and his team as we've talked through that. Um, and then we've also talked about reporting of performance results. Uh, and I know um, uh, Kim Miranda has, has had a lot of feedback for us on that. Um, in terms of what's going to be meaningful and, and aligning with, with her long range plans um, for financial reporting in the organization, especially. Um, so I think you know, we, th these are things that sort of permeate the, 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 the pulse of the organization, um, if you will. Trustees, any question on these values? Again, these four values, heady, accountability, trust, and data seem to bathe the whole structure, all four pillars. So we could use those words in quality committee, use the words of trust in sustainability committee and, and always relying on the data. It, 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 yeah. it, and I see community percolating through all of them, accountability to our community. How, like yeah. what is the continuum of care? What's what is metrics? the experience yeah. out there? And and metrics will be, I know yeah. that there were, I mean, even ICD-10 has yeah. social determinants and others to be measured. But trust is again, a, 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 just like patient is in the center, the community is in the center. As earlier said, it's the metrics. I mean, it looks clean and it looks to provide, in, in my view, a good guidance for as we develop the metrics. You know, you know, we, we when, when we first started this, we got the metrics because that was just the number we could get, right? Now, now, do we choose a metric because it represents accountability and trust within the quality committee, and it represents heavy within the quality committee? So it, I, I think for our executives and our other leaders, this sort of provides, after you get used to the, how, how this works, it, it provides a useful guide for our decision-making. Yeah, 
think it's kind of cool that way. Martin? And I see a hand up from Trustee Friedman. Is that a new hand or is that the, is that the hand from earlier? It's an earlier hand. I will get rid of it. Thanks. All right. Did not, didn't, did not want to, uh, didn't want to miss you. Uh, yeah, thank you. So as, as we go through um, for each pillar, we, we introduce each pillar in the plan um, with, with what that pillar is. So quality care, AHS provides high quality care that is accessible to all. Um, and, and when you think about these, these are all sections, uh, each one of these sections in the final plan, I think the full draft now, um, most of these sections are somewhere between 20 and 30 pages. Um, they're, they're not dense pages, so it's not like reading a novel, uh, but we've tried to provide a lot of detail that can then be distilled down um, for specific audiences. So you'll start to see a structure that repeats as, as we go through this. Um, within the quality care pillar, um, we'll move through these. These are all actions that I think you all have seen before. Um, they, as I said earlier, they are being revised um, throughout the week um, by, by the ELT, um, and we anticipate um, having those ready for their approval um, in the next uh, 10 days or so. Martin, are these next few slides based on the 20 items we discussed previously at the retreat? Yes, sir. And then okay. the descriptions of the pillars. We, we can skip to the timeline in the interest of time. Actually, let me let me pull my trustees. Trustees, do you need to review those 20 uh, items that we discussed before? Yeah. Actually, the executives had voted on them. There was a red line through number 16, but then we determined we could do all 20. Mm -hmm. Does any trustee need to go through those again? No. no. All right, Mr. McKittrick, take us. Okay, we'll take you down to the timeline. Uh, I think we already accomplished our goal. Uh, so <laughs> thank you, Dr. Chairman, for uh, pulling that forward. Um, so from our timeline, this week, as we've talked about, we are reviewing each pillar action and metric at, at an annual detail level. Um, next week, uh, we will here on the team, uh, Emily and I will be uh, working to get a final draft of the plan um, to circulate with ELT. Um, they'll have about a week to review that. Uh, with the intent of approving it on April 26th at their weekly meeting. Um, once the ELT has approved and said this is the, the plan that we're comfortable bringing to the board for their feedback and approval, um, we will get that in your hands very quickly. Uh, our goal um, at present is to have a confidential draft of the full plan uh, for your review and feedback in your hands, hopefully by the 27th, um, providing that it's approved on the 26th by the ELT. Um, recognizing, uh, <clears throat> recognizing schedules as we lead up to the uh, board meeting on the 11th, um, as well as some of the, the Brown Act uh, requirements. Um, what we're going to do is, is sort of have an open availability. Um, I, as I've talked about it with, uh, with James, you know, we call it, I'm kind of, kind of referring to it as office hours, um, where you know, just open time for any, any trustee who would like to, to touch base and we can schedule one-on-one -on -one time um, if you prefer to, to dive in a little bit more deeply, um, but want to recognize that um, with, with a little over 100 pages of material to process, um, it may be a, a document you want to spend some time with well in advance of the board meeting on the 11th. Um, we would hope to bring that full plan up for approval um, at the meeting on the 11th, um, and then uh, after that, we will begin uh, rolling that out um, both to um, the leaders meeting um, through desktop chats um, that James holds every week, uh, as well as bringing it to, uh, to the Med Exec Committee. Uh, once the plan is approved, 
Um, you will see a shift uh, in terms of the presentation. Um, Huron will be stepping back from presentation and AHS leaders will be stepping forward um, because it really is AHS's plan. Uh, we wanna make sure that, that it's clear and that we have, have AHS leaders standing front and center as they present that. Mr. McKittrick, thank you for that presentation. Um, I, I, I think you got to deliberate what you, what you needed from this, which is, uh, it seems to be trustee support of this. And trustees, I want to reiterate, if there's any even inkling of buyer's remorse, we st you st they're still in the work process. I'll ask trustees to reach out to Mr. Jackson, who can then facilitate that discussion going forward. But fr from here on out, the, the projected plan is for this to be an action approval item sorry, discussion action item on our next full board meeting on Wednesday, May 11th. So trustees, you still got a couple of weeks. Uh, the Huron gang will send you some documents by at end of month and then you'll still have a couple of days before that. Trustees, any questions on this? Do we have uh, right now, um, and this wasn't in our, uh, I'm sorry, I haven't- You're had right, this, to, this, this was uh, not in the this, but, but the more detailed, Thing that the 100 pages that you have right now, it's not on board effect, right? We, can we have, a, have access to that, the board, because then Absolutely. gives us time to kind of think about it, uh, schedule one-on-one -on -one time or office hours time with, with the folks. Thank sure. you, Trustee. There are no surprises at the next meeting. I will work with, um, obviously, the Huron team and Martin and Amon to get that up on board effect directly. Okay. So that will be available to all trustees for the in-detail review. Um, Martin, Leslie, we really appreciate you guys. I, I, I think, uh, are, are you okay closing this uh, agenda item? Did you get your deliverable? We are. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank I, you. I know that's important work for us. All right, guys, uh, this is item G2. Uh, uh, our CFO has, uh, as everyone knows, has done some remarkable work. I, I saw a version of this uh, previously, and I and 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 uh, I, I I said to Mr. Jackson and Ms. Miranda, "Man, this is this is actually kind of some great stuff as background." Yeah. Now it's five till eight, and I'm seeing that, that the eyes are a little bit weary. This is actually a great presentation, actually not from a finance geek perspective. Kim has created some Ms. Miranda has created some great slides, which are even for the layperson. Ms. Miranda, is it possible to do this in 15? Well, I can do my best or I can do it another time. Um, uh, it is a 10 year look back and it, and it try to focus just on the, on the big things. I, I can try to do it in 15. Well, well let, let me say the reason we put this is because we are on the, we're, we're, we're at kind of this plastic moment in the organization. So I thought the look back it's so important to contextualize where we're going forward. And again, it's great work that Ms. Miranda did. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna give a dealer's choice to the trustees. Um, I, I actually, I, I think that was a big ask of Ms. Miranda to try to get this in 15, because it's, it's, it's great stuff, a little bit dense. Trustees, are, are the documents just good enough for you? Do, you want, do we wanna migrate this to the finance committee? Do you wanna hear it now? And as, a, as, as to flavor your thing, I'm anticipating closed session to be 45. <laughs> it's five till eight. Yeah, we should do justice to this. I think this is an excellent. Uh, it, it is excellent. Retro. Yeah, and so this so was, 
This is bad board board president agenda agendizing. I'll take the blame on that. So you're you're proposing deferring. Yes. Would you propose to defer it to a full board or to the come rolling up through finance? Full board probably should okay. get this. Mr. Finance Chair, I know you read those documents, mm -hmm. and you, you actually already know all that. Um, <laughs> trustees, are you okay with deferring this item? I'm fine if, um, if it comes th back. there's nothing. Yeah, there's nothing urgent about it. Th there's nothing urgent. Right. I, I didn't see any decision. We're not making a decision. We're not making a decision. I, when I thought I was being fancy, I thought it would provide context for the strategic plan, and I just blew through the concept of everyone's fatigue. But I, I agree. I think it should come to the full board. Okay. So we'll put that. So we'll close. Ms. Miranda, I'm sorry. I know you prepped that, but uh, we'll, we'll bring up Trustee Friedman. Yeah. I'm going to suggest a change in the way we structure our agendas. I think the articles are great, but I think we should put them at the end of the agenda, not the beginning, because that way we'll have a better idea how much time we can take on them. That's the thing I Okay. We can do that. I'm a little hurt, but I'll be <laughs> I thought that might wound you a little bit, but it's okay. All feedback's a gift. <laughs> you can't hear a blowhard. Okay, I get that. So you know what we could do? Yes, yes, sir. Chairs, next time, because we have the strategic plan, maybe we should make uh, this item our article for May. And uh, the 10-year financial ten year financial and that way we'll have a little more time because we won't have an article in this coming up with the things we want to do. Okay. I, I, I like that a lot. All right, so let's close out item G. Madam CFO, apologies, but you're probably happy. Um, so we'll, we'll we'll go to item H, which is board calendar and tracking. So uh, as per proposed by, by Trustee uh, Fox, we'll make Ms. Miranda's presentation quote our article. Uh, Ms. Adam Clark, for uh, I don't know about the next board meeting because next I, I don't know we'll decide whether it's next board meeting. Remember, we're dark in August. I'm oh, sorry, we still have May and June, so it, this this will come within the next couple of months. Sorry, I'm already forecasting it July too. So yes, thank you for that proposal. Are there any other board calendar and tracking items? As we're forecasting forward, remember this full board is dark in August. Um, Madam Clerk, we're still trying to get on the calendar for a repeat joint meeting with the Board of Supervisors. Have we had any progress with that? No, I sent a follow-up email actually uh, earlier this week or late last week. Okay. They're, they're working on it. Got it. And then a future point of discussion. We need to be thinking about a fall <laughs> retreat. So, trustees, put that on your brain. That's what I have for board calendar and tracking. Any other tracking items? Oh, sorry. Add to the tracking items. Do we want to hear about an update on the IOP. It's a, a sort of a before and after, if you will. And that's not our future. Got it. So with that, we'll close item H. Item I are the staff reports. Man, uh, uh, that that was a lot of heavy reading, but that's the, the item I one, the CFO's report, which comes to finance. Great report. Um, read it because it actually puts a little bit of a smile on your face about where we are coming into Q4. Item I-2 was Mr. Fratsky's uh, uh, San Leandro Alameda Hospital update. This is actually a great slide deck because it actually helps you understand the differences, be it finance, be it hospital beds, be it services, 
between the three hospitals. I think this is one that should be kept in every trustee's sort of back pocket as we're, as we're talking about that stuff. Uh, I ask you to keep looking at those slides. Any questions about either the CFO report or the COO report? Nope. All right. We just closed most of the open session. We're about to go into, into closed session. We anticipate that this will be about 45 minutes. There is a potential action discussion item after close. A potential action discussion item after close. Um, so for our audience, we're probably going to be there for about 45 minutes, maybe a little bit less if we can move fast. And then we'll come out and we may or may not have to discuss an action item. But otherwise, I uh, uh, appreciate everyone coming uh, for this evening and uh, council. Thank you. Uh, the board will now move into closed session to consider those items as stated on the agenda. All right. How do we? Good evening, everybody.